Hi, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Working Man's Dead by the Grateful Dead, of course, and it's going to be a very special episode. We are going to be joined by my brother, Spencer Cropper, and my best friend, Jeremy Shaw. I decided to have them on because I'm a musician and a deadhead. Spencer is a musician, but not a deadhead, and Jeremy is a deadhead, but not a musician. So I figured it would offer an interesting triangulation of perspectives about this fantastic album. So I'm going to start by giving you a bit of background about the album itself and this 50th anniversary deluxe edition of it, and then I will give you my observations about the studio album, then we will chat with Spencer and Jeremy separately about the studio album, and then I will give you my thoughts about the concert that is included on this release, and then we will chat with each of them again about the concert. This will more than likely be a very long episode, so uh, settle in. It's also episode 25, which is a neat milestone and I suppose makes the extra length appropriate. So as far as background about Working Man's Dead, it was released on June 15th, 1970. Many sources cite June 14th, but I went back and looked and June 14th was a Sunday, so June 15th is the more likely day that it became available to most people. Working Man's Dead is their fourth studio album. The first three were not huge commercial successes. Live Dead, their first live album, which was released November 10th, 1969, was their first real breakthrough as far as official releases were concerned. And it's impressive, really, that they were able to capture their live magic, which was always where the real magic was with them in the vinyl days when you were confined to 25 minutes or so per side. Their studio album before Working Man's Dead, Oxomoxoa, which was released June 20th, 1969, was quite expensive and laborious to make which frustrated uh, Warner Brothers, the record label, and the band, respectively. The label because of the cost, and the band because of uh, how long it took to make. You know, sometimes when it takes so long to record something, uh, you're kind of sick of the songs by the time you finish the album. So this made the stripped-down, less experimental approach of Working Man's Dead a natural choice. As they mentioned in the Working Man's Dead episodes of the Good Old Grateful Dead cast, which I highly recommend you check out if you haven't already, the Grateful Dead's new official podcast. The exact recording dates for Working Man's Dead are unknown, but it would have been at some point in late February or early March of 1970 at Pacific High Recording in San Francisco. They recorded a full band demo tape of the album and determined the sequencing of the tracks a few weeks before they went in to record, and then each band member took a copy of the demo home and uh, listened to it over and over and played along to it and all of that so that they could really hit the ground running and not waste any time 
and consequently money in the studio. And it obviously worked, both artistically and economically. All eight of the songs on the album had already been introduced to the live sets in 1969, so the arrangements were quite polished and ironed out by the time they pressed record. Working Man's Dead was voted 1970's Album of the Year in Rolling Stone, besting Deja Vu by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Moon Dance by Van Morrison. So, fast forward to a few months ago this spring when they announced the 50th anniversary celebrations. I think the Grateful Dead have handled the 50th anniversaries of Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which we'll discuss next week, as well as any anniversary release campaign I've seen, or at least of those I've paid attention to. First off, we have a pristine remastering of the album itself, which is a must, of course. They've recreated the original vinyl sleeve. They've offered limited edition color splash vinyl, which I opted for. I think the American Beauty one looks cooler, but they're both neat. And the CD packaging for both is very cool as well. The Working Man's Dead Deluxe Edition CD has a holograph style cover. And for the bonus material to go with the Deluxe Edition, so that's the CD copies or on the streaming services, the the bonus material isn't available on vinyl, which isn't a big deal in my opinion. For the bonus material, they included a complete concert from the era with each of these. By contrast, I was disappointed with the bonus material for the Led Zeppelin reissues a few years ago. The packaging is stunning and the inclusion of a picture book and numbered print of the art artwork with each uh, album is really cool. But apart from the concert that was included with the first album, the bonus material is all alternate versions and mixes from the studio. And unless you're a producer, there's limited interest in that sort of thing, I think. Instead, the Grateful Dead have included complete concerts in these deluxe editions and made the surviving session tapes available on all of the streaming services under the titles The Angels Share Working Man's Dead and The Angels Share American Beauty. Uh, The Angels Share is a reference to the process of whiskey making. I think this is a much better way to do it, and the outtakes are much more interesting because you can hear all of the chatter between the guys in between takes, suggesting parts for each other and asking questions and all of that. As I say, unless you are a producer hearing marginally different mixes of more or less the same take is only so interesting, I think. I won't go into detail about The Angel's Share, but I highly recommend checking it out if you are a big deadhead or even if you're just a big fan of Working Man's Dead. It's really an interesting window into the development of the songs on this album. The Dead have also put out really cool merchandise to go along with each of these releases. For Working Man's Dead, I went with the t-shirt with the album artwork on the front and the portraits of each member on the back, as well as the baseball cap. But there were several other products, including a partnership with Carhartt, leaning into the blue-collar aesthetic of the album that included a work apron, a jacket, I believe, uh, among other things. There was also a utility knife with uh, Working Man's Dead on it. So I think that was all a really neat touch for 
those who really wanted to celebrate this anniversary. And lastly, as I've mentioned a few times on the show now, they launched their own official podcast, The Good Old Grateful Deadcast, in July, which I have really been enjoying. They've dedicated an episode to each song on Working Man's Dead, uh, plus two bonus episodes in season one, and they're now wrapping up season two. They've done episodes about each of the songs on American Beauty. The Addicts of My Life episode just dropped today, and uh, the final episode about trucking will be next week. And the episodes are incredibly insightful and entertaining. If you are interested in the stories behind, around, and tangentially related to these songs. So by now you've probably had enough of the introduction and are ready to dive into the music and find out what I'm going on about and what has substantiated such a long episode. So first we will go track by track through Working Man's Dead and I'll give you my observations about each song and also the number of times that song was played live and some general observations about how it worked in the live setting. I should also mention, since the album has been remastered as part of this anniversary campaign, let me just say that the sound quality is fantastic and I can notice an improvement over previous releases of the album. Nothing in particular jumps out and it's not like I ever thought this album sounded bad before, but it's very clean, clear, and detailed with great separation to clearly hear each part. Now, the late Robert Hunter, who passed away last fall, wrote the lyrics for all eight songs on this album. He was Garcia's writing partner for their entire career, basically, and is a huge part of what made them so great and what sets them apart from other uh, jam bands. Because not only do they have incredible jams, those jams are rising out of some of the most incredible songs of the 20th century from a lyrics perspective. So six of the eight songs on Working Man's Dead are Garcia Hunter compositions. Cumberland Blues is Garcia Lesh Hunter, and Easy Wind is Hunter by himself. And seven of the eight songs are Garcia lead vocals. The lone exception is Easy Wind, on which Pigpen sings lead vocals. Now, the dead felt that Hunter had so outdone himself compared to his prior lyrics that they included him on the album cover. He's the one sitting on the steps. And he also became an official non-performing member of the band. I agree with the band's assessment of the quality of his lyrics for this album, so I will read them for each song before we discuss it. So leading off, we have Uncle John's band. Well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry anymore, cause when life looks like easy street, there is danger at your door. Think this through with me, let me know your mind. Whoa, oh, what I want to know is are you kind? It's a buck dancer's choice, my friend, better take my advice. You know all the rules by now, and the fire from the ice. Will you come with me, won't you come with me? Whoa, oh, what I want to know, will you come with me? God damn, will I declare, have you seen the like? Their walls are built of cannonballs, their motto is don't tread on me. Come, hear Uncle John's band, playing to the tide, 
Come with me or go alone, he's come to take his children home. It's the same story the crow told me, it's the only one he know. Like the morning sun you come, and like the wind you go. Ain't no time to hate, barely time to wait. Whoa, oh, what I want to know, where does the time go? I live in a silver mine, and I call it beggar's tomb. I got me a violin, and I beg you call the tune. Anybody's choice, I can hear your voice. Whoa, whoa, what I want to know, how does the song go? Come here, Uncle John's band, by the riverside. Got some things to talk about, here beside the rising tide. Come here, Uncle John's band, playing to the tide. Come on along or go alone, he's come to take his children home. And then it uh, repeats that sort of thing a few times at the end. Uncle John's Band is such an entrancing pastoral opening to an album. It signals a major stylistic shift from their previous output. Really, they started as a folk outfit in Palo Alto, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, so this album was more of a return to their roots. But for those who had quote-unquote got on the bus, which is the term for when one becomes a deadhead, for those who had got on the bus during their quote-unquote primal period, which immediately preceded this, the soft acoustic opening of Uncle John's band was quite a change. And if you can hear that, a garbage truck is picking up our stuff right now, which is uh, about as working man's dead of a distraction as you could have, so we'll leave that in here. The song is chock full of lyrical wisdom, but I'll highlight a few things. First off, the opening line, well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry anymore, because when life looks like easy street, there is danger at your door. That one has always been comforting for me when I have a, a first day of something that I'm nervous about, whether it's a new job or a, a new school. It always uh, I can throw Uncle John's band on that morning, and it makes me feel like it's going to be okay. And then the second verse, think this through with me, let me know your mind. Whoa, whoa, what I want to know is are you kind? Was a very appropriate line to put at the beginning of an album in the early part of 1970. 1969 had been a very tumultuous end to the 1960s. While Woodstock, the famous uh, festival that I'm sure you all are familiar with, which took place August 15th to 18th in Bethel, New York in 1969. Well, that was a great accomplishment for the peace and love message of the hippie movement. It was also sort of a last hurrah for that movement. The Manson murders had taken place in Los Angeles just prior to Woodstock and the investigation into those and subsequent arrests would fill the rest of 1969. And then there was Altamont, which took place on December 6th in Tracy, California, just outside San Francisco, which should have been the West Coast's version of Woodstock, but ended with a fan named Meredith Hunter being stabbed to death by one of the Hells Angels who was working security. There were also three accidental deaths, two in a hit-and-run car accident and one drowning in an irrigation canal. It's ironic that the West Coast 
version of the that sort of festival would be the violent one. Uh, the West Coast is usually seen as chill compared to the neurotic Northeast. I can say that because I live in the Northeast and can confirm because I've been to California and it was pretty chill. So in light of all that, are you kind was a pretty fair opening question to ask somebody that you might encounter in the summer of 1970 and a fair rhetorical question to ask of the listening public in general. Ironically, the album was released on the same day that The People vs. Charles Manson et al. began in Los Angeles County Court, June 15, 1970. My personal favorite line in the song has always been, it's the same story the crow told me, it's the only one he knows, like the morning sun you come and like the wind you go. It really eloquently encapsulates how fleeting our time on this planet is, which is an idea that they would revisit later in the year on Box of Rain, which kicks off American Beauty, and we'll discuss that next week. Both do it in a much more hopeful way than uh, something like Shakespeare's Macbeth with the uh, out-out brief candle and life's but a poor player that struts and flits its hour upon the stage. I may be slightly misquoting that. It's uh, been a few years since grade 11. Uncle John's Band is a deceptively simple song. It's not the basic campfire sing-along that it sounds like. The phrases that end with a question, the question changes each time. So yeah, it sounds similar, but you have to be paying attention to what you're singing to get it right. The first one well, what I want to know is, are you kind? And then the second, will you come with me? Won't you come with me? Or what I want to know, will you come with me? And then further down the third, ain't no time to hate, barely time to wait, which is a great line. Whoa, what I want to know, where does the time go? And then the final one, anybody's choice, I can hear your voice. Whoa, what I want to know, how does the song go? So it gives a really nice cyclical sense of closure to the lyrics, but it also adds to the difficulty of uh, remembering them all correctly when you're singing it. And the chorus also changes. Sometimes it's come here, Uncle John's band, by the riverside, got some things to talk about here beside the rising tide. And other times it's come here, Uncle John's band, playing to the tide, come on along or go alone. He's come to take his children home. I've actually always wondered if that variation of the chorus is in reference to the rapture. If not, it certainly can double as that. Come here, Uncle John's band playing to the tide. Come with me or go alone. He's come to take his children home. The song is also deceptively simple musically because it has two sections that flip to 7-4 time towards the end when that kind of Spanish lick kicks in the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da before the final vocal breakdown and then it kicks in again after the breakdown is something that might slip by the average listener because it's so smoothly integrated and sounds so natural and like obviously that would be part of the song because it fits so well, but it definitely adds a, a layer of intricacy and complexity to the song. And of course, instrumentally, the song is acoustic apart from Phil's bass. 
but it's some really great playing and the percussion is really cool and it's kind of builds in intensity and complexity as the song goes along. Overall, Uncle John's band was a major songwriting breakthrough for them and a great opener to this album. There are 327 live performances of Uncle John's band on record, which is the second most on this album. It debuted, as all of them did, in 1969 and was played every year thereafter, except 1975, which was the hiatus year when they only played a handful of shows, and 1978, it wasn't played either. It was played 52 times in 1970, which is double its next highest year, 1971, during which it was played 26 times. The song really took on a life of its own in the live setting. While the vocals didn't quite compete with the studio version long after 1970, it really took off instrumentally and lent itself to some spectacular jams, both within the song itself and transitioning in and out of other songs. Two that stand out to me on that front are the version from May 25th, 1972 in London, which you can find on Europe 72, Volume 21, where they go from Uncle John's band into Warfrat into Dark Star, and it's uh, quite a jam sequence. And the November 17th, 1973 version at UCLA, which you can find on Dave's Picks, Volume 5, where they go from playing in the band into Uncle John's band into Morning Dew, back into Uncle John's band, back into playing in the band. Kind of a musical Big Mac, if you will. And my personal favorite live version of Uncle John's band is the show opener from September 18th, 1974 in Dijon, France, which is on one of those 30 trips around the sun or 30 days of dead uh, type releases. I forget which one, but it is on Spotify. If you just type in like Uncle John's band Dijon, it's the first one that comes up, I believe. Track two on Working Man's Dead is High Time, and the lyrics for it are as follows. You told me goodbye, how was I to know? You didn't mean goodbye, you meant please don't let me go. I was having a high time, living the good life. Well, I know. The wheels are muddy, got a ton of hay. Now listen here, baby, cause I mean what I say. I'm having a hard time, living the good life. Well, I know. I was losing time, I had nothing to do. No one to fight, I came to you. Wheels broke down, leader won't draw. The line is busted, the last one I saw. Tomorrow come trouble, tomorrow come pain. Now don't think too hard, baby, cause you know what I'm saying. I could show you a high time, living the good life. Don't be that way. Nothing's for certain, it could always go wrong. Come in when it's raining go on out when it's gone. We could have us a high time, living the good life, well I know. I love these lyrics, especially the opening line, you told me goodbye, how was I to know? You didn't mean goodbye, you meant please don't let me go. If you've ever watched a romantic comedy, you'll know that a lot of times uh, one of the two people in the entanglement will pull some sort of sabotaging move and uh, try to blow it up or say it's not going to work or 
you know, tell the other person goodbye in some way. And then at the end of the movie, it's revealed that they didn't really mean goodbye. They just wanted the person to fight or they were uh, resisting it or whatever the case may be. And the whole song seems to be the narrator lamenting that his love interest is trying to uh, over scrutinize everything that he says and look for hidden meanings that aren't there. And the entire thing is just like, no, I mean what I say, just take me literally, please. And please mean what you say. And uh, we'll get along a lot easier without all the games. It also could be interpreted as the narrator saying that they are willing to have a kind of casual thing, but they don't want it to be anything more, you know, come in when it's raining, go on out when it's gone and saying they're willing to have a high time if that's cool with the other. Overall, high time is just a beautiful country ballad. Each of them exercise excellent restraint. Bob's rhythm playing is perfect. Phil's bass part is very interesting a superb pedal steel playing by Jerry. And it's amazing that he'd only been playing it for about six or seven months at the time because it's quite a complicated instrument to learn. And there are also really beautiful harmonies on this song and some really excellent lead vocals from Jerry, especially on the come in when it's raining line. There are 128 live performances of high time on record which ranks sixth amongst the songs on Working Man's Dead. It debuted in 1969, as all of these ones did. It was played in 1970, and then not again until 1976. It was played every year thereafter, except 78, 83, and 89. Uh, 1969 was the year with the most versions, uh, 33, and 1970 was second with 23. It never hit double digits in any year thereafter. I would say High Time is the most criminally underplayed song on the album. I think it worked pretty well live, and I suppose it's decently represented uh, post-hiatus starting in 1976, even though it never hit double digits in any of those years. Uh, but it's a shame it wasn't played at all in the 72 to 74 peak since that period produced my favorite version of most songs. My favorite version of High Time might be the May 17th, 1977 one from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which you can find on the May 1977 box set. That Tuscaloosa show is my favorite show from 1977, and I would say so far it's my favorite post-hiatus show. All-time best versions of Scarlet Begonia's Into Fire on the Mountain, as well as Terrapin Station and a few others as far as I'm concerned. Track three on Working Man's Dead is Dire Wolf. The lyrics to it go, In the timbers of Fenario, the wolves are running round. The winter was so hard and cold, froze ten feet neath the ground. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. I sat down to my supper, was a bottle of red whiskey. I said my prayers and went to bed. That's the last they saw of me. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. When I awoke, the dire wolf, 600 pounds of sin, was grinning at my window. All I said was, come on in. 
don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. The wolf came in. I got my cards. We sat down for a game. I cut my deck to the queen of spades, but the cards were all the same. Don't murder me. I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. In the backwash of Fenario, the black and bloody mire, the dire wolf collects his dew while the boys sing round the fire. Then the chorus again twice and then an outro. While these lyrics may be simpler than some of theirs, I still think they're really great and they really paint a vivid picture. The Fenario that's mentioned is a somewhat uh, mythical place that is where the song Peggio is set, which is an old Scottish uh, folk song that the dead adapted and played quite a bit live, and I really like their versions of it. And uh, Bob Dylan did a version of it. Lots of people have done it. Dire Wolf features more uh, splendid steel guitar, and I love how Jerry's solo dances back and forth across the left and right channels. Overall, Dire Wolf is just a great, fun little song, and it always makes me picture somewhere in the Rockies, uh, somewhere really rugged and western like Montana or Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or Telluride, Colorado. There are 221 live performances of Dire Wolf on record, which ranks fourth amongst the Working Man's Dead songs, debuted in 69 and played every year thereafter except 75 and 76. It was played 37 times in 1970, which is the most, and 1978 is second with 27 versions of it. My favorite version might be the April 26th, 1972 version in Frankfurt, Germany, which you can find on Europe 72 Volume 9. It's electric, but it's quite good. Track 4, rounding out side 1 of Working Man's Dead, is New Speedway Boogie, and the lyrics to it are as follows. Please don't dominate the rap, Jack, if you've got nothing new to say. If you please, don't back up the track. This train's got to run today. I've spent a little time on the mountain, spent a little time on the hill. Heard some say better run away, others say you better stand still. Now I don't know, but I've been told it's hard to run with the weight of gold. Other hand, I've heard it said it's just as hard with the weight of lead. Who can deny, who can deny, it's not just a change in style. One step done and another begun, and I wonder how many miles... Spent a little time on the mountain, spent a little time on the hill. Things went down we don't understand, but I think in time we will. Do we keep on coming or stand and wait, with the sun so dark and the hour so late? You can't overlook the lack jack of any other highway to ride. It's got no signs or dividing lines, and very few rules to guide. Spent a little time on the mountain, spent a little time on the hill. I saw things getting out of hand. I guess they always will. I don't know, but I've been told, if the horse don't pull, you got to carry the load. I don't know whose back's that strong. Maybe find out before too long. And then the outro, it repeats the following phrase three times. One way or another, one way or another, one way or another, this darkness got to give. I've always loved the opening line, please don't dominate the rap, Jack, if you've got nothing new to say. It kind of makes me think of today's socio-political climate with the sensationalist media and social media and all of that. 
Uh, the song was written in response to the aftermath of Altamont, which I mentioned earlier. The Dead were scheduled to play at it and ended up backing out at the last second because they didn't like the way things were trending and they saw it was already getting out of hand. The Rolling Stones, of course, did end up playing and the stabbing death occurred during their set. And the song makes a lot of sense when you read it in that context especially the spent a little time on the mountain, spent a little time on the hill, things went down, we don't understand, but I think in time we will. And the other one, I saw things getting out of hand, I guess they always will. The Altamont Speedway, which is where the concert was and lends the song the Speedway title, was located kind of up on a hill. The song has a great groove to it, and it actually sounds kind of Rolling Stones-like, which is interesting since the Stones obviously are the band most associated with Altamont now. Phil's bass sounds a good bit like Bill Wyman, and the shuffly feel of the percussion resembles that of some blues-based Stones songs, and the stabbing guitars remind me of Keith Richards playing. I wonder if that was a nod to the stabbing death. I've never noticed this resemblance before either. I'm not sure if uh, it was intentional or not. There isn't really a vocal resemblance. It's cool how paradoxically for the heaviest song on side one, the only percussion is hand claps and maracas. And the closing refrain of one way or another, this darkness got to give is as fitting now as it was then. There are 54 live performances of New Speedway Boogie on record, which is second last amongst the Working Man's Dead songs. Debuted in 69, as they all did, was played in 1970, and then dropped for 21 years, and then played each of the final five years, 91 through 95. It was played 21 times in 1970, which is the most, and 91 was second with 10 versions of it. You'd think it had more potential as a live song. Uh, the most likely reason it wasn't played more is that Jerry found it awkward to play and sing it simultaneously, and he actually sang it without a guitar on the studio version. My favorite version is probably May 15th, 1970 at the Fillmore East, which you can find on Road Trips, Volume 3, Number 3. Kicking off side two of Working Man's Dead, we have Cumberland Blues. The lyrics to it are as follows. I can't stay much longer, Melinda. The sun is getting high. I can't help you with your troubles if you won't help with mine. I gotta get down. I gotta get down. I gotta get down to the mine. You keep me up just one more night. I can't sleep here no more. Little Ben Clock says quarter to eight. You kept me up till four. I gotta get down, I gotta get down, or I can't work there no more. A lot of poor man make a five dollar bill, keep him happy all the time. Some other fellas making nothing at all, and you can hear him cry. Can I go, buddy? Can I go down, take your shift at the mine? Gotta get down to the Cumberland mine. Gotta get down to the Cumberland mine. That's where I mainly spend my time. Make good money five dollars a day. Made any more, I might move away. A lot of poor man got the Cumberland blues. He can't win for losing. 
lot of poor man got to walk the line just to pay his union dues. I don't know now. I just don't know if I'm going back again. And it repeats that twice. The uh, pace and volume of the album really picks up with Cumberland Blues. It's rip-roaring psychedelic bluegrass and an incredibly accurate sonic and lyrical depiction of Appalachia. It sounds like you're whipping around through the hills in a pickup truck. I love the banjo and Phil's bass line is crazy. There are 217 live performances of Cumberland Blues on record, which is fifth amongst the working man's songs. Debuted in 69, of course, and was played every year thereafter, except 75 through 80. So 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, they didn't play it, but every other year they did. Uh, It was played 43 times in 1971, which was the most, and 1970 is second with 42 versions of it. As I said, it's the headiest or most psychedelic of the studio versions of these songs, and it really took off that way in the live setting. My favorite version is April 8th, 1972 in London, which you can find on Europe 72, Volume 2. Next up, we have Black Peter. Now for this one, I'm going to tell you what it's about before I read the lyrics, because it'll make a lot more sense that way. So Robert Hunter wrote it about a horrific acid trip he had in June of 69, wherein he drank a large glass of punch backstage at the Fillmore West in San Francisco that had been doubly dosed. During the trip, he lived and died uh, many times and witnessed famous assassinations such as Julius Caesar and Abraham Lincoln and all sorts of uh, pretty spooky stuff. Okay, so the lyrics. All of my friends come to see me last night. I was laying in my bed and dying. Annie Bino from St. Angel say the weather down here so fine. Just then the wind came squalling through the door. But who can the weather command? Just want to have a little peace to die, and a friend or two I love at hand. Fever roll up to a hundred and five, roll on up, gonna roll back down. One more day, I find myself alive. Tomorrow, maybe go beneath the ground. See here how everything lead up to this day, and it's just like any other day that's ever been. Sun going up and then the sun it going down. Shine through my window and my friends they come around. Come around, come around. The people may know, but the people don't care that a man could be as poor as me. Take a look at poor Peter, he's lying in pain. Now let's go run and see. Run and see. Hey, hey, run and see. Bill has a really nice touch with the brushes on this one, and I love how the organ enters at the just want to have some peace to die line, gives you a spiritual vibe. The uh, see here how everything bridge really hits hard and is one of their best bridges, and Pigpen's harmonica at the beginning of the final verse is a perfect touch. Brilliant restraint like this uh, is all throughout the album. It enters at just the right time and doesn't stay in the mix a second too long. 
There are 343 live versions of Black Peter on record, which is the most among Working Man's Dead songs. Debuted in 69, of course, and was played every year thereafter, except 75 and 76. 1970 had the most performances of it with 42, and 1980 was second with 27. It produced some very nice live versions, and I think it worked quite well live, which is probably why they played it so often. My favorite version would probably be between, uh, going chronologically, May 2nd, 1970 in Binghamton, New York, which is an acoustic version. You can find that on Dick's Picks Volume 8, or May 24th, 1972 in London, which is on Europe 72 Volume 20, or June 26th, 1973 in Seattle, which is on the Pacific Northwest 73 to 74 complete recordings box set. The penultimate song on the album is Easy Wind, the only one with lead vocals by someone other than Jerry, as I mentioned. The lyrics for it are, I've been ballin' a shiny black steel jackhammer, been chipping up rocks for the great highway, Live five years if I take my time, ballin' that jack and drinkin' my wine. I've been chippin' them rocks from dawn till doom while my rider hide my bottle in the other room. Doctors say better stop ballin' that jack. If I live five years, I gonna bust my back. Yes, I will. Easy wind, cross the bayou today. Cause there's a whole lot of women, mama, out in red on the streets today. And the rivers keep a-talking, but you never heard a word it said. Gotta find a woman be good to me, won't hide my liquor, try to serve me tea. Cause I'm a stone jack baller and my heart is true, and I'll give everything that I got to you, yes I will. And then the chorus again. Easy Wind was probably the second song I fell in love with on Working Man's Dead after Uncle John's Band. It's such a cool groove, and it's really a great example of taking the blues and doing something new and unique with them, in this case, kind of psychedelicizing them in the earthiest way possible, while trading the typical blues sort of drum beat for a very polyrhythmic tribal feel. I love all of the repeated upbeat crashes during the choruses at the end as well, and in keeping with or perhaps because of the lyrical references to the bayou, it always makes me think of southern Louisiana. Go Tigers! It makes sense that Easy Wind would make you think of southern Louisiana stylistically as well, though, with the jambalaya of influences going on, uh, blues which originated in the Mississippi Delta, and the African tribal drumming with the prevalence of voodoo in that part of the country. There are only 40 live performances of Easy Wind on record, which is the fewest of the Working Man's Dead songs. It was played 14 times in 1969, 23 times in 1970, and 3 times in 1971. I think it sounded great live, and I wish they had played it a bit more. I understand why it wasn't played after Pigpen passed away in March of 73, but I wish it had been played past April 4th, 71, which ended up being the last version. A Europe 72 version or two of it would have been awesome. My favorite version is the one from the late show on June 24th, 1970 at the Capitol Theater, 
which uh, flows out of the opening Not Fade Away, and that show is not officially released. And the final song on Working Man's Dead is Casey Jones. The lyrics to it go, Driving that train high on cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And you know that notion just crossed my mind. This old engine makes it on time. Leaves Central Station at a quarter to nine. Hits River Junction at 17-2. At a quarter to ten, you know it's traveling again. Driving that train high on cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And you know that notion just crossed my mind. Trouble ahead, lady in red. Take my advice, you'd be better off dead. Switch man sleeping, train hundred and two. Is on the wrong track and headed for you. Driving that train high on cocaine. Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And you know that notion just crossed my mind. Trouble with you is the trouble with me. Got two good eyes, but we still don't see. Come round the bend, you know it's the end. The fireman screams and the engine just gleams. And then the chorus twice more. And at the end, a second, and you know that notion just crossed my mind as it all winds down. Casey Jones is definitely one of the most well-known and recognizable dead tunes to the general public. They even play the riff during a cutaway in Friends, and I think it makes for a perfect album closer. It begins with a sniff as I replicated Co-producer Bob Matthews said in the episode about Casey Jones that he regretted that decision pretty soon after. He thought it was uh, too cute of a nod to the cocaine references in the chorus. I personally think it's subtle enough that it goes over most people's heads. Uh, I mean, it went over my head the first uh, several times listening to it. At the very least, by the time people do notice it, I think they probably love the song already and aren't about to be deterred by it. I love the railroad imagery of it. I was obsessed with trains when I was little, and uh, one of my dad and I's main bonding things used to be going and train watching on Saturday mornings. I actually just went to our old spot yesterday when I was in the neighborhood and uh, caught one in the few minutes that I was there, and pretty well everyone in the family contributed to my Thomas collection when I was little, all my parents, all my grandparents which is to say that I'm a sucker for a song with train references, and this one is actually loosely based off of the real-life Casey Jones, who was an engineer in Mississippi and heroically lost his life to slow down his train that was approaching a stalled train. He was not under the influence of cocaine or any other adulterant, though. And, you know, even for a seemingly jovial song like this that most people just think oh haha they're talking about cocaine it still has some pearls of wisdom in it like trouble with you is the trouble with me got two good eyes but we still don't see certain parts of phil's baseline actually remind me of obladi oblada by the beatles the backing vocals leading into Jerry's solo sound like a distant train whistle, which is really cool. Another tasteful touch on this album. 
And the way the climax builds in intensity and perfectly mimics a runaway train is so brilliant. The snare work even sounds like a train passing you when standing beside the tracks. The and there are 301 live performances of Casey Jones on record, which is third most amongst the Working Man's Dead songs, debuted in 69, of course, and played every year from then through 1982, except 75 and 76. But after that, it was only played in 84, 92, and 93, 70 times in 1971, and uh 64 times in both 1970 and 1972 so it was a huge part of the set list for those three years and then uh, became more sporadic after that it was most often used as a first set closer show closer or encore and i think it fit that role really well when they nailed the feel of the climax it was a great live song and my favorite version might be the April 24th, 1972 version in Dusseldorf, Germany, which you can find on Europe 72, Volume 8. As far as my general thoughts about Working Man's Dead, it really flies by at just 36 minutes, and it's very well sequenced and flows really well. The sepia-toned, old western-looking cover perfectly matches the music, not only are the songs on this album very natural and earthy and authentic and grounded to reality compared to the Grateful Dead's catalog up until this point, they also hint at a somewhat mythical bygone era in America, the Wild West. You know, for all of the movies and TV shows and iconography and entire music genres inspired by the Wild West and cowboys and all of that, that period of American history really only lasted about 10 to 20 years at the most. Like pirates, it's quite possible that the myth and legend has superseded what the reality was. But we aren't in a history lecture, we're talking about music, where it's perfectly acceptable to indulge in fantasy and a bit of wistful revisionist history. The actual physical sleeve of the vinyl copy of the album is also rough more natural or bare bones cardboard which very much fits the working man aesthetic as well in many ways this album tells the story of america at the very least it sounds just like america or at least the rural parts and in the case of new speedway boogie easy wind and casey jones the blue collar parts of urban america in one of the Working Man's Dead episodes of the Deadcast, their former tour manager, Sam Cutler, discusses how the notion of discovering America was very popular at the time, not just in the exploratory summer road trip way, but also relocating to the countryside, returning to the land, and all of that sort of thing. And he mentions that this concept is very uniquely American, uh, he's English, and he says no Brit walks around saying they're going to discover England. It makes sense, though, because America is a vast and beautifully diverse country as far as both human and physical geography are concerned, so there's a lot worth discovering. And Working Man's Dead is a perfect soundtrack for discovering America. 
You've heard me mention my interest in personality psychology before, particularly the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is based off of the eight cognitive functions proposed by Carl Jung about a hundred years ago. He proposed that there are two primary ways of making decisions, thinking and feeling, and two primary ways of absorbing information and learning about the world, sensing and intuiting. And he proposed that each of those four have an introverted and extroverted flavor, if you will, which gives you eight cognitive functions. And there are 16 combinations of the order that you can have those functions in. And incidentally, the existence of these functions is now being proven by neuroscience. Anyhow, if you'll indulge me once again, I have a pet theory in this regard. Whether or not the band intended this, I suspect not. It seems to me that Working Man's Dead tells the story of America from a sensing perspective, while American Beauty tells the story of America from an intuiting perspective. So, sensing, introverted sensing, and extroverted sensing are concerned with what is, what's tangible, what's verifiable, what can be learned and experienced through your own five senses or your own personal memories and such. Introverted sensing is a bit more focused on the memories and the past and precedent and expert opinion and that sort of thing. And extroverted sensing is more concerned with this immediate moment and your five senses and all of that. And then with intuition, it's more concerned with what could be and likes to learn by making speculative leaps. And in the case of introverted intuition, it's sort of watching your own mind work and just letting things percolate and sort of zoning out. And in the case of extroverted intuition, it's uh, brainstorming and exploring all of the possibilities uh, either in the present or not quite so distant future. Introverted intuition is concerned with quite distant future. Anyhow, so in this regard, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty really do go together and are two sides of the same coin. And I'll explain the American Beauty side of it next week, of course. But with Working Man's Dead, as I mentioned, it's all quite grounded in reality. Uncle John's band could be taken spiritually, as I mentioned, but really Black Peter is the only song that even deals with death or the afterlife. And even then, it's in the most realistic way possible. There's no mention of what awaits you on the other side. Instead, it's lines like, just want to have a little peace to die and some friends I love at hand, or tomorrow maybe go beneath the ground. It's hard to talk about death more matter-of-factly than that. And even though Hunter wrote it about what happened to him on an acid trip, if you don't know the backstory, it could just as easily be from the perspective of a sickly old man in his rocking chair gazing out at his cattle in the field. And there aren't any hints at outer space or other realms or psychedelic excursions of any kind on this album. Musically, hints at those elements are still there for the astute listener to notice, but not lyrically. It's almost all dealing in either the present reality, extroverted sensing, 
or hinting at the past, introverted sensing. The imagery is very literal, tangible, and earthy. Uh, in high time, the wheels are muddy, got a ton of hay, an easy wind, ball in a shiny black steel jackhammer, or chipping up rocks. It doesn't get much earthier than that. Or in Black Peter, fever roll up to 105. Or in Dire Wolf, the winter was so hard and cold, froze 10 feet neath the ground. Even the substances mentioned, uh, cocaine, Casey Jones obviously contains one of the most well-known cocaine references, and I would argue that it's between extroverted sensing and extroverted thinking for which cognitive function cocaine appeals to the most. And then alcohol, which I would argue is the most introverted sensing of all adulterants, uh, most introverted sensing dominant or auxiliary users that I know, uh, alcohol is the only uh, vice that they have much interest in. In Dire Wolf, you have, I sat down to my supper, twas a bottle of red whiskey, and easy wind, balling that jack and drinking my wine, and then later, find a woman be good to me, won't hide my liquor, try to serve me tea. And then, on a more meta level, in high time, the narrator is plainly telling his love interest to take him literally and not try to read into what he says for some hidden meaning because there isn't one, which is music to a censor's ears. Pardon the pun. My mom is an introverted sensing dominant, an ISFJ, and whenever she's describing somebody that she likes, the first thing she says is always, they're a real straight shooter. Okay, so thank you for indulging me in that pet theory. Working Man's Dead represents a major step in their development as singers as well as songwriters. Jerry's lead vocals are excellent, and songs like High Time and Black Peter established his storyteller style that he would continue to employ for years to come on songs like Row Jimmy and Terrapin Station. While he may not be a vocalist on the level of a Robert Plant or a Freddie Mercury, I do believe he was an excellent singer for about a decade from just before Working Man's Dead until his substance use started affecting his voice in the 80s. He understood his strengths and weaknesses and sang accordingly, and his voice had an enchanting quality. He had a way of drawing you in and carrying you away, and you could tell that he had great chemistry with Hunter as a songwriting partner. Uh, he really bought in and brought Hunter's stories and the characters in them to life in a way that we fans uh, feel they describe people we know and worlds we can visit. And that all started with Working Man's Dead. Their harmonies are much more sophisticated and extensive than they had been before as well. If I had to rank the songs on Working Man's Dead, this is the order that I had them in when I made my list of top 100 Grateful Dead songs back in the spring. I'm, I'm not entirely sure I would leave the order this way if I did it over again, and I'm not sure they would uh, rank in the same spots in the grand scheme of things that they did, but anyhow, I'll give you from top to bottom and then uh, what they ranked overall. So Uncle John's Band, number two, High Time, number 23, Casey Jones, number 24, 
Easy Wind, number 41, Dire Wolf, number 42, Black Peter, number 43, New Speedway Boogie, number 51, and Cumberland Blues, number 52. So basically what that tells you is I kind of have a few tiers with this album where Uncle John's Band is clearly my favorite, and then High Time and Casey Jones are obviously the next two, but they're really close to me. And Easy Wind, Dire Wolf, Black Peter would be my next group, but they're really close. And New Speedway Boogie and Cumberland Blues aren't far behind and are also really close. And those scores work out to an average rank of 34.75. I explained how this album tells the story of America, but I didn't really explain how it sounds like uh, America, particularly the rural and blue-collar urban parts. It includes most of the genres that are either native or semi-native to America, folk, bluegrass, slash mountain music, uh, blues, country, and rock, including buried hints of the psychedelic rock that they helped pioneer. Most importantly, though, Working Man's Dead seamlessly synthesizes these genres in a new way that sounds as old as the country itself, which is both very impressive and highly enjoyable. It's not so much an album to dose to as an album to put on in the backyard with a bourbon and a cigar after a hard day's work, which is good because you need those types of albums too sometimes. So at this point in the proceedings, I'm going to give my brother Spencer Cropper a call and he is going to give us some further musician's insight into this album. Uh, being a guitarist and bassist, he's a bit more well-versed in certain aspects of music theory that can be a bit of a blind spot for drummers such as myself. This would be a good spot to pause it, by the way, and uh, take a little washroom break if you need one, or uh, stretch your legs, replenish your snacks. Okay, so if you're back, we will give Spencer a ring. Okay, so today we have a very special guest to help us talk about Working Man's Dead, my best musical companion and songwriting partner and former bandmate, and most importantly, my brother from the frozen tundra of Innisfil, Ontario. Please welcome Spencer Cropper. Hey, how you doing? All right, so today you are here to talk about the Working Man's Dead 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. Do you recall when you first heard Working Man's Dead? Uh, it's probably two or three years ago that I heard it in full. Uh, obviously, like more well-known tracks like Uncle John's Band, uh, Casey Jones, High Time. Like I've known those for a while. Uh, but yeah, a couple years ago is when I would have listened fully through. Uh, probably about the same time I listened to this one in American Beauty. Um, I'm, I, I favor studio recordings over live, so the dead have always been kind of an interesting thing for me because I love them and I, I know they're great, but I'm not into uh, listening to concerts. So like these were kind of my jumping off point, uh, these two albums. And uh, I, I, from the first time I listened to it, I, I just loved it. I loved the, the kind of folky Americana sound of it. And, you know, obviously they're, they're fantastic writers and even better players. Yeah, we Spence and I have had this debate many times about live versus studio, and uh, 
the merits or lack thereof of 30 minute versions of songs. <laughs> There's a time and a place for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So you sort of covered your initial impressions of the album. What stands out to you or impresses you the most about working man's dead from a songwriting perspective? Um, I mean, it, it, right off the bat, I think all of the songs on it are good and, and unique and, you know, it never gives you exactly what you're expecting. You're listening and then it's like, oh, where'd they go there? Um, but probably the most impressive thing to me is how, co- how cohesive it is. Um, like with eight different songs, they're all filling their own role. But, you know, you listen track by track and this album's best the whole way through. You listen start to finish and it just it's a it's a collective piece like it's it all fits together perfectly and it, it to me it's kind of one one big song almost the way it fits together yeah yeah i feel that which is obviously a, a mark of a good album when you consider it as a an art form in and of itself when it started to be viewed as its own thing not just a collection of songs for sure well and i like i think the the bare minimum for an album in my opinion, in my opinion is like every song's great, mm-hmm. but that's just the starting point. And it's like, do they fit together? You know, Oh, this song's great, but does it really go with the one before it and after? Whereas, you know, this is an album that strikes me as just, yeah, these fit together. Like they belong together. There really is no other order I'd want or another song on here. I just, it's like, this is the way it should be. And it never leaves me thinking, yeah, you could have, you could have fit another one in there. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what differentiates a greatest hits from an actual like studio album they made at some point in the progression of their career. Absolutely. And with as far as the sequencing, uh, they got together a couple weeks before they went into the studio and recorded full band uh, demo tapes to take home and like just let the songs soak in and everything. And at that stage, they determined what they wanted the sequencing to be, so that once they actually got into the studio, they could hit the ground running. Well, that's interesting. They did it that way. Cause I mean, there's so many great albums that like, like you think about Sergeant Pepper or now pet sounds, you know, those are albums that were recorded track by track and then they picked the sequence. And of course, once you hear it, you're like, Oh, couldn't be any other way. Right. But they didn't sit down and go, it's going to go this to this, to this. Um, uh, that's interesting to hear that, that even before recording, they were, they were already set on the order because it, it, it kind of strikes me as a backwards way of doing it. But for this, it certainly worked. Well, part of it was uh, they were quite in the hole to Warner brothers because of how expensive Oxamoxoa had been to make uh, the year before yeah. and wasn't a huge seller. They recouped some of that with live dead, which came out in November 69, but they, uh, they really wanted to make this as economically as possible. So that was part of wanting to be like right, ready to go. Right. Right. Just go in knowing what you want and just lay down the tracks and it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about from a performance perspective, instrumentally, vocally, what uh, impresses you the most? Probably Phil's bass playing the most to me. I mean, obviously as, now with that being my primary instrument, I mean, I do kind of put my ear to the ground specifically looking for what the bass is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I mean, I love Jerry's playing. I love the whole band, but specifically Phil. Um, I just find like he's, he's never doing too much. He's never doing too little. And it's always, you know, helping the song move forward. Right. He's always got a moving line in there exactly when you need it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. when You need that little push into the chorus or whatever. Um, well, and of course he's, he's just a fantastic player. Like he's all up and down the neck. Like he's, he's so unique in that sense. Um, and you like, to me, it's pretty immediate. It's like, yep, yeah, that's Phil Esch on bass. Like he's recognizable off the bat. Um, and I mean the vocals, I, I love, I love how laid back it is, uh, in terms, like, I mean, obviously it's more acoustic than electric, I think. And, and so to me, it kind of gives, um, just a very reserved feel like they, they know the songs are good. They're not trying to force it and make you think that they're just mm-hmm. playing songs and singing them. And it's like, yeah, that's great. It doesn't need any more. Um, and I love it. It almost has like a skiffle feel to me. Some of the songs like Excellent. Cumberland blues, like it's, it's very upbeat, like it's acoustic. It's not slow. Um, but it's almost like that double time where it's like all the time. Um, and I, I love that about it. And, and I think the bass playing really helps with that. I, I feel like it's constantly like, yeah, I, I don't feel like it needs to be any faster. Um, it just keeps chugging along and, you know, before you know it, the album's over and you're like, I want more. Yeah. Yeah. One interesting uh, thing about Lash as a bassist is, you know, a lot of bassists are converted guitarists who either weren't quite good enough or just drew the short straw when there were three guitarists that tried out for the band or whatever. Um, or some people go straight to bass, but he was actually a trumpet player before switching to bass. So it's interesting how that informs his playing. When you can hear it too, like I, I know I've seen interviews where he talks about like before he was in the dead, he was really into jazz like, and he was listening to Miles Davis and all that kind of stuff. And of course, like now, like in 2020, you go, oh, Miles Davis. In the 60s, he was he was still great. He was Miles Davis, but it, it wasn't to the point yet where it was like common knowledge that like that's fantastic music. Like what he was doing at the time was almost like unacceptable by jazz standards. It's like it's right. out there. Especially um, once you got to like Bitches Brew and stuff like that. Absolutely. And then you hear Les just playing and you can definitely hear it's like informed on that kind of that anti-establishment kind of thing where it's like, we're not playing what you want us to play. We're like, we're going to make this as cool as we can. And I think, you know, that carries right over to the dead because, you know, they, they're so unique in that sense that it's like, you've never heard anybody else that sounds like them. Like it's so one of a kind. And, and I think you hear that, that they were influenced by music that was like strange at the time. That's what it was considered. It was like kind of wacky. And then you tie that in with the, the songwriting of Weir and Garcia. And of course the lyrics, like, it just all fits together to me mm. so well. Yeah. Uh, as far as, sides of the music theory coin that as a drummer i'm not as uh like well versed on like chord changes and stuff like that and unusual keys and anything is there much of that going on here um yeah i mean typically like i'm listening like are there like formal modulations like are they 
are they really changing key or are they, are they just, you know, playing a chord that's supposed to be minor, but it's major in this sense. And I hear a lot more of that from the dead. Like it's, it's ambiguity. Like it's supposed to be this way, but they're playing it this way, but they're not necessarily going to a different key. And I don't think they thought about it like that too much. Mm. I mean, I Phil would have and, and Jerry as well, but like, I, I don't think they were sitting down and going, this is the new song and it goes from this key to this key. I think they were just going, this is a song and it does this. And then the guys in the band that knew that was something weird were like, oh, I know how to, how to embellish that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me on Uncle John's band, I love at the end uh, where it flips into that kind of Spanish lick. Yeah, well, it flips to 7-4. Right. And it fits perfect, like because it goes to that that little riff, and like that that definitely caught my ear when that happened. Mm-hmm. And it happens twice there, which is great because the first time it happens, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then the second time around, you're like, now it's going to end, and then it doesn't again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think all the songs are filled with with stuff like that, other than the ones that are kind of straight up blues. Mm-hmm like new speedway boogie like easy wind those are just kind of mm-hmm. run of the mill blues progressions but of course it's you know one of the best bands you could possibly have going over those progressions so uh, from a songwriting pr- perspective i think they're so full of like there's always fresh air there's always mm-hmm. a new idea coming into the song right when you need it which is exactly what you want like you don't want to be doing too much crazy stuff with the chords when you don't need it Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, uncle John's band is a perfect example there where, you know, it's going, it's going, it's going. And it's like, okay, are we coming to an end here? Where are we going with it? And then they introduce that and it's like, Oh, it can keep going for a bit. I like this. Well, and that section of uncle John's band is where it would really shine in the live setting. Cause obviously the vocals weren't quite what they are on the studio version much after 1970, but they would really stretch out that part and utilize it as a, jumping off point into other songs yeah and that's it's fantastic that like it's not just like the album version is is it's just that fresh air but live how they can take that and manipulate it and almost make it a transition from the one song to the next Mm. and i mean that's all you need to know with the dead is that they were so versatile and you know it's one way on this recording but then the next time you hear it you're like whoa that's different and they were just so fluid with it where they could take that section and, and make it serve more than that one purpose. Yeah. That's the transitions are the first thing that really impressed me when I started digging into their live stuff and like how seamlessly you can stitch together seemingly disparate songs for like an hour or more. Right. Absolutely. Well, and like, you know, there's not a lot of bands that can do that. And especially knowing that, you know, they might just have a different idea as they're playing and they're like, you know, they throw up a hand or whatever. And it's like, yeah. let's go. And, and that's, that's the most impressive part. Cause I think it never sounds really planned to me No, when they're doing it. It's just like, they're kind of just going here and seeing when they land on that new song. Yeah. 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 That's, <clears throat> that's sometimes the most thrilling part when you can tell they've reached a spot where they're like suspended in midair, like sort of like all, dancing around the theme like yeah they're all like where are we going here and, and then we're just kind of like i don't know where are we going like take us like let's yeah. go 
<laughs> I mentioned just before you got on actually speaking of Uncle John's and transitions, uh, two that stand out to me, uh, the second last show of the Europe 72 tour in London, they go Uncle John's band into Warfrat into Darkstar, which is um, a really cool suite. And then November 17th, 73 at UCLA, a show that Bill Walton and some of the UCLA men's basketball team went to actually. Uh, they go playing in the band into Uncle John's band, into Morning Dew, back into Uncle John's band, back into playing in the band. <laughs> a musical. Wow, band that's back. cool. Well, and playing in the band, playing in the band is so wacky. Like, yeah. I mean, of course, anytime you hear somebody count in a song as eight, nine, ten, you're like, uh, what are we in for? <laughs> yeah. And to be going right, I mean, you're talking about a song that's roughly in four four, but then the end of it's seven four, and now you're going into a song that's in ten eight or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, ten four. Like you know, it's it's so fluid and versatile in that way, and like just not a lot of bands would even think to try that. And then, I mean, even fewer are going to be able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Speaking of easy win too. Uh, I was also mentioning before you came on how even at first blush, it's like a typical blues song, but if you focus on the drums, they're not playing like your usual blues beat at all. It's like a African tribal kind of feel, which gives it this really nice, like spiraling sensation. Well, and it gives you different context. Like, you know, I love when the chords are what's making a song in- interesting, but like you can play one, four, five mm-hmm. and do something underneath it. That's different. And it's, it's just as interesting, right? I mean, throwing a different rhythm under, under blues, it's yeah. not blues anymore. So like, it, just like that, you've created something new out of it. And it's, you know, you, you do run out of things to do. Like you need to have some songs that stick to one, four, five. I mean, when you think about, so many great songs. I mean, a lot of them are exactly that. Like, right. I, I loved their rendition of Johnny be good on the, uh, on the live side of this release. Yeah. We'll get there in a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But like it, it, with easy wind, it's like, you know, you can see how this was a band that started playing those kind of standards, you know, mm-hmm. rock and roll numbers and then taking that and making it their own with a, you know, a different beat. And, of course, the the collection of of their players together just sounds unlike anybody else, mm-hmm. and so even playing those chords, I mean, it's it's so unique in that way. And I, I loved the the harmonica on Easy Wind. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't yet part of the album having that flavor, and then it comes in, and you're like, oh, I see why this is here. Yeah. Well, actually, there's a there's a small bit of it towards the end of Black Peter, which is right before Easy Wind. Right. So, and, and in that same way, right. It's like, it's transitioning into it. It's like, Oh, here's a little harmonica. And you're like, okay, where are we going? And then the next song, it's more of a focal point, right? Yeah. If you had to rank the songs on working man's from favorite to least favorite, what would that look like? Uh, uncle John's band would be my top, uh, Casey Jones, High Time, Dire Wolf, uh, Cumberland Blues, then New Speedway Boogie, and then Black Peter and Easy Wind to uh, round it off. Okay. We have a a similar top three, but I think mine's Uncle John's High Time Casey. 
Yeah. If you were to rate Working Man's on a scale from one to five, what score would you give it? And you can do decimals. Um, probably like anywhere from three point five, maybe a little more. You know, three point seven, three point eight. I don't because it's only got the eight songs. Like, you know, I'm any any album that I might consider to be like a five typically has like almost twice that. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not going to take points off necessarily for that. Um, but I don't like, it doesn't strike me as, as a perfect album. Like, you know, I'm stranded on an Island and this is the only album I ever want. It doesn't strike me as that. Um, but I mean, three and a half, like for me to give something a three and a half, like, I think it's good. Like there's lots of albums that I'm like, that's a two out of five. Yeah. So like a three and a half on this, like th- that's absolutely a compliment from me. Like it's, for an eight song album, that's probably as high as I would go. I think it's an awesome collection of songs. Uh, so you kind of alluded to this, but do you have any idea where you would rank it in your personal list of favorite albums? Definitely. Like it's my second favorite dead album. American beauty is my favorite. Um, you know, there's, there's so many great albums. Like I would say for sure in my top hundred for the seventies, Okay. <laughs> I, which I, I know sounds like non-committal, but <laughs> I can't, I can't say it would be in my, you know, top 50 or anything of all time, anything like that. Okay. Um, but I say that also thinking like, it's good to have 150 favorite albums. Like it's good to have that kind of variation. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, uh, for sure, these are two albums that uh, I love. And, and Working Man is an album that, you know, I regularly come back to and listen to. I, I do think it's, it's unique in that way and that it's, you know, it's definitely an album that people should listen to and should give it a shot because I don't think it disappoints. Yeah, it definitely scratches a particular itch. Like if you're looking for something to just, you know, kick back with a, a cigar or a a beer or whatever after a, a long day or cut the grass or do something like outdoorsy or kind of rugged. Yeah, it, it's definitely, um, I mean, it's so different from American beauty in that way as well, where it's like, it's, you know, they're similar, but it's like, this is a very particular album. It's, you know, you're not going to get it from anything else. And I love like with it being, um, so stripped down and like primarily acoustic. Um, it kind of strikes me as like a nice balance of like, maybe I don't want to sit down and listen to Bob Dylan right now. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm not quite in the mood for, you know, the beach boys or the Beatles or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of falls somewhere in the middle. And it's not that it's like either of them, but it gives you a taste of, you know, the intellectual and then the poppy all in one. Yeah, I, I get that. Like chill, but not too chill. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that kind of leads into my next point. To my ears, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which we're going to discuss next week, are two of the most quintessentially American albums ever made, You know, sonically, lyrically, thematically. To me, they kind of tell the story of America. I'm uh, wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I think they both contain like kind of a glimpse at 
the heart soul of America, of that kind of American dream. Like this album personally makes me feel like I've, I'm wandering through the woods and I stumble like onto a, a campfire and it's just the Grateful Dead sitting there playing it. Yeah, like, I get that. Especially feel, Apple Jazz Band. Yeah, like you feel like you're sitting there with them, but you feel like it's a concert just for yourself. Mm-hmm. And like, I think with, you know, the guitar work on it, um, there's like a looseness to it. And I think that's kind of like the freedom that you have in the U.S. Um, But I also don't feel like they're hiding anything. Like, I don't think they're representing it as like, oh, it's it's so great. I think it's just like it's it is what it is. Yeah, it's not sugarcoating. It's here's the good and the bad of it. Right. Like, you know, even just the little sniff leading into Casey Jones. Right. And and you're talking about. You know, it's not hiding that having that much freedom also leads to having yeah. drugs yeah. all over the place. And, right. But that it's still focused on like knowing that there's bad parts of it, but enjoying the good parts more. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about like that good life, like with high time, right? Like it's, that's kind of what sums it up to me. The album is like, you know, we're going to have a high time living the good life. Yeah, nothing's for certain. It could always go wrong. Absolutely. Or even uh, that's I hadn't even thought of it that way. But like a line in Cumberland Blues, like make good money five dollars a day. If I made any more, I might move away. Right. Like it's it's like I made good money for where I am. Right. But I'm five- still in the Appalachians, and if I made more, maybe I'd go live in California or go to the beach or. Absolutely. So it's kind of like understanding that your situation isn't the greatest, but like looking for the good parts and not focusing on like what you don't have. It's like, I do have this and it's good for, it's good for where I am and it's good for what I need. Mm -hmm. And further to that point, uh, if I may drag us down the rabbit's hole of uh, personality psychology a little bit, it occurred to me, when I thought of that, that working man's dead and American beauty are two sides of the same coin in the sense that working man's tells the story of America from a sensing point of view and American beauty tells the story of America from an intuitive point of view. So, you know, in the Myers breaks, how sensing and intuition are the two ways of perceiving and sensing is focusing on, what's tangible and verifiable and uh, can either be observed by the five senses or, you know, past precedent and expert opinion and stuff, as opposed to intuition, which is making speculative leaps and thinking more about the future and what could be and all of that. Do you think there's uh, any merit to that distinction between the two? For sure. Like I, and I think you could almost like stack one track from each against each other to, to show that or prove it or however you want to think of it. Like, I think you put uncle John's band next to ripple and that's exactly that. Like uncle John's band is, this is what's here and this is what we're doing. And it's very realistic in that way. And then ripples almost ethereal in that it's, it's like, not focus so much on where we are or what we have. It's, it's more so a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Like 
come here, Uncle John's band by the riverside versus there is a fountain that was not made by the hands of men. Right. Like that lyric alone, you're, you're like, that has nothing to do with reality there when really it does. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's viewing it in, you know, your own intellectual way and not focusing so much on how others are, are viewing that. Or like peeking behind the curtain to use a wizard of Oz. Yeah. And I, well, and I think working man's because of that, like it strikes me as really humble and honest. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think they're trying to sell you on anything. Um, And not that American beauty is, but whenever you have that kind of lyric, like there's a fountain made not by the hands of men, like Mm -hmm. that's, it's a bit more like try thinking the way I think. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is like, I'm just telling you what I see. You can see it too. If you look, you can see it, but I'm going to tell you what I see. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, I, I like the, I love the vocal harmonies on this stuff. It still has that looseness to it, but they sound so great. Like the guitar playing underneath it. I love the acoustic work. Like you just hear Jerry shining, Mm -hmm. like just how versatile he is. And uh, I think it was Cumberland blues. I was listening to, I don't know what it is. If it's like, um, like a guitar tuned higher than normal, or if it's like not a ukulele, but something. There is a banjo on it. Yeah, and then, well, there's something that's chugging that seems a bit like a banjo, but it doesn't really sound like it. Okay. And, like, that, to me, like, it's it's unique to this album, like, that kind of flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, like, it just shows you a really early look of, you know, if they were a studio band and they weren't this jam band, like, mm-hmm. to me, they still would have been successful in that sense. Like, all of these songs are, you know five, six minutes and they're great. Like they don't need to be 15 in this iteration. But then of course, knowing that this is the same band that can take them out and extend them and do crazy Mm -hmm. things with them. It really does start to show you um, why they're so great and why they've managed to stay relevant this long. Yeah. And even the, I noticed differences in the, uh, the imagery in the vocals, like how earthy and tangible it is like to take high time. For example, the wheels are muddy, got a ton of hay as opposed to like a line, like from sugar magnolia, she can wade in a drop of dew. Absolutely. Well, and I like with it being that way, like I think the vocals on work and dead are a bit drier. Like there's not mm-hmm. quite much reverb. Um, and because of that, it makes you feel like that same earthy, earthiness to it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't seem like it's been doctored. It really just sounds like a voice sounds when you're in the room. Um, and of course that plays along right with the lyrics and with the music, like it all fits together perfectly. And that was obviously done intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's like eh, back off on the reverb a little bit. Yeah. That's the sound we're going for. Um, and I think it's, it's folky in that way that it's, you know, you don't really hear the studio at all on this album. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they recorded it in a studio, but like today they could have just sat down in a room and recorded it. Yeah. You could just easily picture them in a barn or a backyard or 
Right. Or like even just a bar that like nobody's in, like it's just like, it just sounds like they found a dead room somewhere and played the songs. There's not really any trickery, you know, it's just, it's a very realistic painting of what they were at that time. Mm -hmm. So I know you kind of mentioned this earlier, but uh, would you agree that working man's dead is a, a necessary piece of any musician or songwriters collection and if so how would you convince a fellow musician who might be skeptical about the dead to give this album a try i definitely agree with that um and like this album and american beauty i think are essential regardless of the fact that they're by the grateful dead like as albums they're essential and whether you want to be a a deadhead or not to me, if you want to be a writer, you want to be a musician, like these are great albums to listen to. There's so much to learn from them. Um, and anybody that's timid, like to, to put their foot in the water and just see, you know, do I like it or not? I think typically that's because they're like, well, I'm not a huge fan of jam bands mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm not this and I'm not that. And it's like, okay, well, or like, I don't do acid. Why would I listen to that? <laughs> right. And it's like, you know, just sit down and listen to this album. It's only eight songs. It's really not long, just the studio version. It's, you know, you sit down and listen to it. To me, it doesn't strike me as a listen that you need to give like more attention to than you would to other stuff. Obviously, if you're going to listen to one of their concerts, like you have to have the attention span for it Mm. because you get into like the 20th minute of Dark Star. And like, if you're not paying attention, like you're not, you're not going to be vibing with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is like, really listen to this. Don't even think about the fact that it's the Grateful Dead and that they're this or they're that. They're not a jam band in this sense. They're just a band. And and I think I would encourage people to start here and then immediately go to American Beauty. And if that's all you like by them, that's it's still lots. Yeah. You still got two two great albums that you can listen to now that you know you like. And And if you find that you like more, a lot of the songs, right, especially on these re-releases, like you've got some live stuff to listen to there. I love that on this re-release, like you hear Sugar Magnolia on the concert, but it's mm-hmm. on the Working Man Dead's release. Yeah. Uh, like I, I love that, that it's it's almost like a sneak peek. If you imagine that they played like the album, they recorded it, and then later that night they went and played that show. Yeah. Like, wow, they've got even more songs ready to go. Yeah. And, and so... Yeah, I mean, with these two albums alone, I mean, that's typically what I stick to with The Dead. Mm-hmm. Like, I I listen to these two lots, but I don't really listen to a lot of their live stuff. And I, you know, I'm not going through their whole catalog very regularly. No, I know but that's you. Okay. Yeah, I know you like a sprinkling of other ones. I've shown you like Eyes of the World or Terrapin Station. And, right. Um, like, but they're not. I wouldn't be calling those essential, but to me, these are like, it's kind of undeniable. Like if, if you're into music, that's any similar to this, like if you like folk, you're going to like this. If you like rock, you're going to like this. It fits a lot of categories for me. And uh, to me, this is what Americana is. And I think like, there's so much stuff that I hear now that like, I would trace back to this style of recording by the grateful dead mm-hmm. like that's what i hear is like a lot of newer stuff like folky stuff i hear i'm like this is heavily influenced by the grateful dead whether the artists playing it know it or not 
yeah, to me, might, it sounds that way. They might have got it from someone who got it from someone who got it from the dead, but it still Either traces way. back. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much for all those insights, Spence. And we will talk to you again uh, in a little bit later this episode about the concert that's included. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Okay, so that was my conversation with my brother Spencer Cropper for a non-deadhead musician's perspective on Working Man's Dead. And now I will give my friend Jeremy Shaw a ring for a non-musician deadhead's perspective. Okay, so we have the great pleasure of having a very dedicated listener of the show on today. He also happens to be my best buddy and fellow deadhead who uh, listens to shows with me and watches streams with me. And we were supposed to go see both nights of Dead and Company at Wrigley Field this summer before it got canceled. So please join me in welcoming to the show, Jeremy Shaw. Oh, thank you, Zach. It's an honor to be here today. Yeah, I'm happy to have you, buddy. And Jer's actually been... Uh, subscribing to the show long before there was a show when it was just the phone calls between the two of us so well you know uh being a loyal listener and a loyal friend you got to just stick with it and uh and be the best you can be to support those who are striving for success right yeah for sure well i always appreciate it buddy Okay, so today you're here to talk about the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of working man's dead do you recall when you first heard Working Man's Dead? I do. And, uh, you know, I recall it very clearly. It was such a rememberable moment for me. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you're actually the one that introduced me to it. And uh, it was actually this year, believe it or not, during the midst of this uh, pandemic. It was in the middle of spring. And uh, I remember being outside. And, I mean, we shortly, uh, we had a phone call shortly after that. And, and uh, it was right around the time where we found out Chicago was canceled. So obviously that burden uh, was on our shoulders, but you know, we started a new journey and, and uh, working men's dead was the, the experience we started. So I was super excited about that. Yeah. Well, that would have made the, the opening line of the album that much more fitting. Well, the first days are the hardest days. Don't you worry anymore. That's true. Uh, so what were your initial impressions of the album? Yeah, so my initial impressions of Working Men's Dead album, you know, at first I was just getting into the genre of, of that type of music. Um, you know, the style to me was very fitting to the situation I was in, you know, in nature and that kind of stuff. So I was super excited about it. Uh, although it was an older style of music uh, from what I've not been used to. I know it was more of the pop rap kind of scene. Um, but I mean, it caught my attention uh, and I was excited to just start diving deep into it. Okay. I know you and I both associate different artists and albums and songs with different activities and types of weather and times of year and so on. What sorts of things do you associate Working Man's Dead with? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I would associate Working Man's Dead with either, you know, running through a field just, you know, free and, and uh, fulfilled out in nature or, Frolicking. you know, Frolic, yes, frolicking <laughs> like a free-range turkey through nature, uh, or just going down into the deep woods, like traveling through a creek, or just kind of just trying to see nature for what it is. Just get into the jam and and the groove of the songs. The riffs are are just fantastic. So you really just dive deep into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
as someone who isn't a musician, what impresses you most about Working Man's Dead? Do you find that it offers anything that other albums don't? Yeah, I'd have to say for somebody who's just, you know, a listener to just listen to music and not dwelling on kind of just the background of everything like that, I'd say what impressed me most about this particular album uh, was probably the riffs and how you just, you can have a, your own musical journey without even having to really understand uh, the full context of what uh, that band's been doing. So, I mean, just listening to specific songs like Dara Wolf, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I just really enjoyed being able to kind of picture myself in that setting and, and really grasping onto it and just letting myself into the music kind of thing. So cool. Yeah. If you had to rank the songs on working man's dead from favorite to least favorite, what would that look like? All right. Well, let me think about that. So I think I would rank uh, Uncle John's band for number one. I really enjoyed Dire Wolf as well. So that would be, you know, ranked number two. Uh, High Time seemed like a pretty good one to me as well. So that's three. Uh, So number four would be Casey's Jones. Uh, Cumberland Blues would be five for me. Uh, New Speedway Boogie would be six. Black Peter would be seven. And Easy Wins was, was number eight, definitely for me. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah I, have, I have Easy Wind number four. So that's funny how we can... Different uh, preferences, I guess, right? Yeah. Different music hits different uh, personality types. Mm-hmm. So, and you've mentioned that, obviously, a lot of the times on, on your shows and in, in earlier episodes with those podcasts and that kind of stuff. So Yeah, and we'll, we'll touch on that a little more in, in a second. Okay. Um, if you were to rate Working Man's Dead on a scale from one to five, what score would you give it? Uh, you can do decimals. Oh, well, if I can do decimals in that case, then I'll definitely uh, give you one of those. Okay, so I uh, I would definitely rank Working Men's Dead uh, on a scale of 1 to 5, probably about a 3.5, you know, because it's quite enjoyable and it has such a vast number of just different songs within the album. Uh, and I find it just allows you to really just, you know, find your own journey for what it is. But I mean, there are a lot of bands out there that play at such a high competitive level with a performance. Mm-hmm. That's why I didn't give it a full five out of five, because, you know, obviously in your podcast, you mentioned too, like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC mm-hmm. and all those other bands. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're right up there as well. So that's why I gave it the 3.5 just because there's some room still for, you know, interpretation and that kind of stuff, but definitely out there for a high contender, in my opinion. Okay. Do you have any idea where you would rank Working Man's Dead in your personal list of favorite albums? Yeah, if I think about it, you know, I, I don't have too, too many albums. I mean, I have a fair share, but obviously not the, quite the collection that uh, that you've created yourself over there. So uh, <laughs> I would put it definitely in top 10. You know, it's something that you would you would pull out of the the old noggin for, you know, just your odd car ride or something like that, or just want to explain to people about like what you've been experiencing this year in terms of music and that kind of stuff. So I put it in top 10 for sure. Just really enjoyed the the experience that I had during spring when I was first listening to it. If a top 10 album of yours only gets a 3.5, that makes you a pretty harsh critic. You know, <laughs> when you have a friend like yourself, uh, it's, it's hard not to be right. You, you start learning about uh, just the lyrical backgrounds and, and different positions that bandmates have, you know, whether it be the the bassist or, you know, the, the vocalist or the, the drummer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I, I've been an astute listener uh, ever since I started uh, following your podcast, thanks to your amazing um, information you've been presenting to all of us. 
<laughs> well, thank you. Uh, to my ears, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which we'll discuss next week, are two of the most quintessentially American albums ever made. You know, sonically, lyrically, thematically, they tell the story of America. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I would agree with you, since you are the expert, of course. I don't really have too many experiences with those topics um, in terms of, like, making it coincidental to America. Um, I, that's a that's a tricky one for me to answer, being a novice listener, though. I would just say I go with what you, your best expertise are on that. Okay. Fair. I hope I, I hope that was fair. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. Uh, sort of along those lines, this might be a bit more in your wheelhouse since we've you and I have talked a lot about the personality types, and you've been uh, diving into that as well during uh, quarantine and the pandemic. Uh, it occurred to me the other day that uh, the these albums are like two sides of the same coin in the sense that. Working Man's Dead tells the story of America from a sensing point of view and American Beauty tells the story of America from an intuitive point of view with a few exceptions. Uh, Sensing, of course, is like taking in information that's reliable and tangible and verifiable either through your five senses or your own personal memory bank as opposed to intuition, which is uh, taking in information through speculative leaps and brainstorming and watching your own mind uh, work as you zone out and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, of course there is. I mean, being somebody who struggled with, uh, you know, focusing my whole life, as you know, uh, <laughs> a little bit of that ADHD uh, syndrome going on over here. So <laughs> it's the, the free range Turkey reference I made everyone, if you caught that one earlier, um, but yeah, I think that uh, you know, Working Men's Dead, uh, the album itself, does a really great job, in my opinion, just bringing us all back to those simplistic days. Of just allowing yourself to just lose out on the stress that we've all been, you know, acquiring during this pandemic season. And uh, I think you know it's a a bit of a mental break for a lot of us just to be able to, you know, get lost in the song and and uh, just hear your thoughts and if you're not really great at being inside your head then it helps you with that kind of thing as well because i'm all about being in the moment and uh this has allowed me just to you know take some time to sink into what's in front of me and i actually find i'm I'm pretty productive when i when i get inside my brain and use my intuitive point of view per se okay uh and i guess that sort of leads into my next question uh you're a salesman and I am. if you had to sell Working Man's Dead to somebody who's never heard or perhaps doesn't like The Grateful Dead, how would you do it? Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, mentioning I was a salesman. Yes, I, uh, I have that that knack of uh, sales in me or that gift of sales. Uh, well, okay. So particularly if I was trying to sell Working Man's Dead album to somebody, I think I would first start off with getting that person to agree with me to go on a nice uh, long road trip or car ride of some sort uh, and have them a passenger, of course, because I enjoy driving and I put on the tunes for them. So I'd have them get into that, uh, 
the car and and listen to the album or concert depending on obviously the speaker quality we had in that vehicle because mm-hmm. i do enjoy driving with a good set of speakers i find it really amplifies like you're there in person kind of feel mm-hmm. uh and then that way it gets them into a good headspace because you always want your your listener to be you know in that setting that's kind of situational uh, and works well for that specific topic so um, get them on that long car ride and then i would kind of just uh, have them have a scenic route maybe looking out the window um getting you know adjusted to it and uh and picking on those kind of key songs that i found i found were really interesting uh whether or not you know they hit uh home for them or not i mean you and i've had experiences where you're showing me um different songs from led zeppelin and black dog hit home for me right and that Mm -hmm. spiraled me onto some journey uh, on that train right that's a whole different spectrum we'll we'll go on to another time but yeah I mean, I would just get them in a situational setting where not necessarily you're, you're, you're trapped, but you're in a car ride with me. You got the music going. You got a couple hours on your time, nowhere to be, mm-hmm. some snacks in the car, and you're sold, in my opinion. <laughs> now, suppose the person says, like, no, I know what the Grateful Dead's about. That's just, like, spacey, like, druggy music, and I'm not into that, and I don't want to listen to long jams. How would you convince them that like no that like this album's different like there's something on here that you'll dig yeah so i mean first things first with that is you're never going to be able to break stigmas that people have already had embedded in their brain since they're they're young right you can only just deplenish kind of that certain level i'd say to where it's like bearable for what they would understand so they can listen to it. And then when you finally hit home on some certain song that maybe touches their heart in terms of, or their, their mind on like a certain situation, I would say, then you'll be able to say, you know what? It's not for specifically druggies or old people or whatever. Mm. You got to be able to embrace the song with a memory. And that's how Mm. I, I think I would tell them. I mean, Hey, I, I thought it was for, that character that you know spins around in circles and look up in the sky and <laughs> the, la- you know the I mean? dancing like, lady at back. fish exactly <laughs> exactly you know everyone's uh, got their tie-dye outfits on and of course you know we've got our uh, uh grateful dead uh memorabilia and that kind of stuff too we've got mm-hmm. quite a good variety there so i mean hey let's not be wrong right it's got a psychedelic feel to it it's got a very um uh, drug enhanced vibe around it but it doesn't mean you have to be a druggie to listen to it right mm-hmm. we're we're two um working class men gentlemen of i would say and you know mm-hmm. we love it it's just a a musical experience and, and you can kind of just step away from reality a bit right for sure mm-hmm. i hope okay. i answered your question right or correctly <laughs> yeah yeah you did and i have heard that uh w- with the dead in particular you can't really like bludgeon somebody over the head with it and convince them like that it's worth listening to before they're ready. The music sort of finds them when they're ready for it. That's a very good point actually. Yeah. You know, I had my own experiences uh, when I was uh, trying to listen, you know, consistently and a couple concerts a night and uh, you know, I was shutting out a little bit here and there, but you just got to take it in baby steps and, just push through it right it's like anything that's anything that's worth achieving doesn't come easy that's very true yeah we we can talk more about your uh your concert binge a little later in the episode when we talk about the concert that they included uh with this release but uh i think that pretty well wraps up my questions for you 
about the album itself. So uh, thank you for the insight, and we will talk to you a little later in the episode about the concert. All right, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course, buddy. Okay, so we will hear more from Spencer and Jeremy in a little bit. First, I am going to give you my review of the February 21st, 1971 show at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, which is the bonus material for this 50th anniversary edition of Working Man's Dead. And then we will give those two a call again for their thoughts on it. So as far as general observations about this show, this six-night stand, February 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, 23rd, and 24th of 1971 at the Capitol Theater was almost their first shows of 1971. They played four shows about a month prior, January 21st in Davis, California, January 22nd in Eugene, Oregon, and January 24th and 25th in Seattle, Washington. With this run being almost the first shows of the year, it features many debuts and very early versions of songs that would become mainstays of their live shows for decades to come. So I'll start by going track by track and then give more general thoughts about the show after that. And as I did on the two episodes last week and the Veneta 72 episode, I'll give you each song's current ranking on headyversion.com. Since this show is only just now being officially released, there shouldn't be much official release bias at play. So the show opens up with Cold Rain and Snow, which is currently tied for 31st. Bob says, we thank you for your patience, and they tune up for a little over a minute and then launch into it. Pig's organ is great on this one, and the pace is great as well. It sounds like trudging through the deep snow with some heavy boots on. It's quite a dynamic version. They really drop low and out for the first halves of the verses. And Jerry's Gibson gives it some bite that it didn't have once he switched over to a Strat. It applies to all songs, of course, but some songs benefit from that extra thickness more than others. Second song is Me and Bobby McGee. This version is currently tied for 32nd. They open the second night in Copenhagen in 72 with this combo as well, and this show has a very similar vibe to that one. They're both kind of relaxed and the music breathes really well. And Me and Bobby McGee is one song that I think really benefits from the single drummer lineup. Uh, Mickey Hart had began his three-year absence from the band after the first night of this run, the February 18th show, which we'll talk about next week. Jerry plays the ending phrase an octave lower than usual on this Bobby McGee. Overall, a very nice version. Uh, afterwards, Bob uh, says, Seeing as you asked, Mickey's under the weather. He's too under the weather. He ain't feeling well. He hasn't been feeling well for the past few nights. As you may have noticed, he hasn't been here. It's uh, strange. Perhaps he hadn't told them he was definitely leaving, or they thought he might change his mind, or they hadn't decided how they wanted to handle his departure from a public relations perspective. Anyhow, third song is Loser. This version is currently tied for 73rd. I love Bob's rhythm work on this one, and uh, Jerry plays a unique solo. I like it. 
a pretty good early version overall. Uh, Loser debuted the first night of this run. The fourth song is Easy Wind. This version is currently tied for 16th. I love this song and think it works pretty well live, so it's always a treat when uh, a show that I'm listening to has it in the set list. There's a massive lyrical flub by Pigpen about a minute and a half in that affects an entire minute of the song. He makes up for it with an enthusiastic harmonica solo afterwards, though, and Jerry's solo is great. The lyrical flub keeps this version out of the upper echelon, despite the instruments being great. Still uh, ranks 16th because it was only played 40 times, and in fact this was the second last time. Uh, April 4th in New York would be the last. My personal favorite version, and the one currently ranked first, was at this venue, though, the late show on June 24th, 1970, coming out of Not Fade Away to start the show, and that show is really fantastic. Uh, Probably the most lysergic-sounding show I've ever heard just explodes out of the gate with that sparkling buzz to it and uh, has a very unique Dark Star, Addicts of My Life, Dark Star, Sugar Magnolia, Dark Star, Medley, and a Swing Low Sweet Chariot encore. Anyhow, back to this show. The fifth song is Playing in the Band. This version is currently tied for 265th, so way down there. But that has more to do with how many great versions of it there are, and this being one of the very first versions, it had only debuted on the 18th, and the pace has already picked up compared to that debut version, which we'll cover next week. Phil plays some really crazy stuff around the one-minute mark on this version. I haven't mentioned it yet, but he's an absolute terror at this show and is easily the star this night. Even though the midsection is still very abbreviated, you can already hear the seeds of the madness to come on later versions of Playing in the Band. Uh, Quite a nice version. Next up is Bertha. This one's currently tied for 62nd. Some guy yells for Uncle John's band just before they start. Uh, He'll get his wish at the end. This one's nice and fast, really bursting at the seams, everybody pushing the envelope at every turn. Jerry has some tasty lead licks during the verses and a great solo with a nice thick ending. They're starting to figure out the ending section of the song. The solo is in its final resting place now. They just cut the final vocals a few repetitions short. You can see why they played it 55 times in 82 shows in 1971. All six nights here at the Capitol, all five at the Fillmore East at the end of April. They were clearly loving their new toy. It debuted on the 18th as well. Next up is Me and My Uncle, which is currently tied for 63rd. Great solo from Jerry with a great ending on this one, and it has a nice galloping pulse to it. You can just picture yourself riding away after robbing a bank or riding off to a shootout in some old western town. Next up is Ripple, and this version is currently tied for 5th. It gets a big cheer when they launch into it, and then they stop to tune up. Bob says, nothing but the best for you folks. Other than Jerry flubbing the let it be known portion of the uh, there is a fountain line, it's a sweet near perfect version. I think it worked better than they thought in the electric arrangement. 
and I wish they had played it more often. It was only played 41 times in total, seven times in 1970 in the acoustic sets, four times in 1971, 27 times in 1980 when they brought back the acoustic set for their 15th anniversary. Uh, Deadcast did a great bonus episode about that a few weeks ago, by the way. Uh, Twice in 1981, also in acoustic sets, and once in 1988 in Landover, Maryland, at the request of a young fan who was dying of cancer. I watched that version on YouTube, and it's quite moving. If I knew the way, I would take you home. Next up is Next Time You See Me. This version is currently tied for 24th. This is one of those blues-based pig pen songs that often feels a bit nondescript to me, and I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I actually really like this version, though. Uh, Pigpen has a great harmonica solo, and Jerry's solo is great, but the tempo is a big part of why I like this version. This is a song that I actually think works better slower. It just breathes better and feels like a more natural rhythm for it. For this reason, April 29th in Hamburg is my favorite of the Europe 72 versions. The tenth song is Sugar Magnolia. This version is currently tied for 38th, which is actually a very respectable score for Sugar Mags since it was played 589 times, sixth most of any song in their catalog. Getting it on a night when Phil is especially on is always a treat because it's uh, one of my favorite bass songs, and he doesn't disappoint here. The vocals are excellent on this version. The harmonies and backing parts are on point. Jerry's solo is terrific. It starts off fast and furious, then turns contemplative, and then bam, into the Sunshine Daydream coda, really laying the wah-wah on thick. It's an excellent version overall, very energetic. And an interesting historical note, in the Deadcast episode about Sugar Mags a couple weeks ago, they revealed that Bob and Robert Hunter had a big argument over the lyrics, which is interesting since the album was already out, but apparently they had been disagreeing about it since the fall. Uh, They had a big argument about the lyrics at some point during this Capitol Theater run, and it marked the end of them working together. Uh, Jerry, of course, continued working with Hunter to further spectacular results, and Bob started working with John Perry Barlow, a friend of his from his school days. Weir and Barlow wrote some cool stuff, but with results like this, it's too bad he didn't continue working with Hunter as well, although it leaves Sugar Magnolia as this beautiful Weir-Hunter anomaly. Next up is Greatest Story Ever Told. This version is currently tied for 49th. Before they start, Bob says, as if acknowledging the relaxed pace of a lot of the songs, although not Sugar Magnolia, which came just before this, he says, excuse us, folks, it's Sunday night, you know how it is, real slow. With Greatest Story Ever Told, these early versions, before they made it more straight ahead and driving, Always remind me of Footloose by Kenny Loggins. Uh, Greatest story ever told, of course, predates Footloose by 12 years, but Loggins did listen to The Dead. In the Friend of the Devil episode, they discuss how he used to play it live. Interesting. This version of Greatest Story has a cool feel with lots of ghost notes on the snare from Bill. It's a neat version, and it's cool to hear it so embryonic. 
and it swiftly transitions into Johnny Be Good to wrap up the first set. This version of Johnny Be Good is currently tied for 36th. Pigpen's organ is really wailing, or squealing you might say. Sometimes this song can feel a bit haphazard when people cover it, the dead included, but this one is very tight while still being raucous and explosive, uh, one of the better ones I've heard, and a slick ending fill from Bill. Kicking off the second set, we have China Cat Sunflower into I Know You Rider. This version of the classic duo is currently tied for 86th. Some guy yells I Know You Rider as they return to the stage, so he gets his wish. Before they launch into it, Bob says, We're going to have a little contest now. We're going to see who in the audience can cut loose with the best coyote howl. The decision of the judges is final. I think it came from somewhere over there. Whoever it is, you know who you are. Phil is an absolute beast on the intro of this China Cat. Very John Enwistle-like, but like a stoned John Enwistle. And he continues the rest of the way. I love how Jerry chugs along while he's singing the verses on this one, and which he gets in the right order on this one. Bonus. There's an interesting start to the transition on this one. Jerry disappears momentarily, so Phil and Bob set sail and let him catch up. In fact, Bob just takes off and plays Jerry's usual lead part for most of the transition, and Jerry contributes some interesting rhythm work before they switch back speaks to their chemistry to improvise the switch so seamlessly and to how much they listen to each other that Bob knew Jerry's part off by heart on the fly like that. And now into I Know You Rider, Jerry plays some neat stuff low on the neck around the 2.30 mark and then more extensively in his subsequent solo from 3 minutes to 3 minutes 30 seconds. The crowd is very enthused and clapping along during the breakdown at the end. I think it's a unique and underrated version of this pairing, especially the China Cat, uh, much better than the version from the Fillmore East in April on Ladies and Gentlemen, as far as 71 versions go, in my opinion. Next up is Birdsong. This version is currently tied for 69th. This is only the third performance of Birdsong. It debuted two nights earlier on the 19th. It's another one that I think benefited from Jerry's Gibson tone on these 71 versions. Conversely, with China Cat Sunflower, I Know You Rider, the ladies and gentlemen version from the Fillmore East in April is superior as far as officially released early 71 bird songs go. Being written about Janis Joplin after she passed in October 1970, it was obviously raw and fresh on these early 71 versions. Having said that, this song probably peaked in 72 and 73. Veneta 72 and Vancouver 73 in particular are my two favorite versions. It's cool to hear it so early in its development nonetheless, and it's pretty tight for being only the third performance of a somewhat unusual song, structurally speaking. Next up is Cumberland Blues. This version is currently tied for 36th. As I mentioned about the studio version, it's rip-roaring psychedelic bluegrass with Jerry and Phil going wild as usual for great live versions of this. This is a very good version vocally speaking as well. Next up is I'm a King Bee. This version of it is currently tied for third. It's one of my favorite blues tunes and they always did a great job with it. I'd trade any big boss man for a King Bee. This one is nice and slow and sensual. 
pretty aggressive bass drum work from Bill during Jerry's solo as well. I love the ending. Pull your car in my driveway, turn your lights way down low. Pull your car in my driveway, turn your lights way down low, cause I'm fixin' to wind up your transmission till your motor won't run no more. Deserving of top three for sure. Following that we have Beat It On Down The Line, this version's currently tied for 80th. Bob lets the crowd choose the number of beats for the intro. Name a number, pick any number. Pig's organ rounds this one out nicely, and it's a pretty fun version with a nice Jerry solo. As I've mentioned before, this is usually a take it or leave it song for me, but I like this one. Next is Wharf Rat. This version is currently tied for 60th. This was the fourth performance of it. It was played at all but the final night of this run. I love what Bob does during the I've Got a Girl verse, and Jerry unleashes some cool licks around the seven minute mark that remind me of Dreams by the Allman Brothers Band. It has a cool ending that sounds like both a star and a train. Really neat. It's a very nice version and a big improvement over the debut on the 18th, which is currently ranked second. We'll get to that next week. The only thing the 18th version has over this one, besides the novelty of being the debut, is its placement within a dark star as opposed to launching into it cold. I think Warfrat fits best when they transition into it out of a long, spacey segment, as it implies that you have to journey deep into space or the ether or back in time or whatever to arrive at the wharf. This one is somewhat unusual in that regard as a standalone. There are more epic ones from later years, but this is a very tight version. Next up we have Truckin'. This version is currently tied for 217th. It's a pretty relaxed pace for a truckin', but it's interesting for a change. It's uh, well played and sung, but the pace makes it more of a curiosity than an all-timer. After truckin', we have Casey Jones. This version is currently last because I had to submit it. There's a pretty good climax on this one, which is the key to the song in my opinion. An all-around solid version that probably deserves to have more than my one vote. I'm sure this release will soon change that. The penultimate song is Good Lovin'. This version is currently tied for 59th. It's one of my all-time favorite songs, whether it's the Olympics original, the Young Rascals cover, which most people know, or the Dead's versions, uh, Pigpen and post-Pigpen. These Pigpen versions are certainly the most epic, though. 1971 was arguably the best year for it, although the Europe 72 versions are very close behind. April 17th at Princeton and April 25th at the Fillmore East, uh, both 71, are probably the best versions, followed by several from Europe 72. This version has tight opening verses and choruses, and these 71 versions had a drum solo immediately following the initial verses and choruses, then the long jam with Big Pen's rap, followed by the verses and choruses again. Uh, the drum solo was cut from that formula in 72. This one has a nice little solo from Billy. I've always liked these ones he played during the 71 Good Lovin's. Lots of rolling and tumbling Tom fills. The way the rest of the band jump back in as they kick the jam into high gear is always cool too, and this one doesn't disappoint on that front. Bobby especially does some cool stuff. Phil is really grooving starting around the 10 minute mark, 
and the rest of the gang soon follow for a great little jam. Pigpen asks who believe in the people and gets everyone clapping along, and Phil really drives them as they explode back into the verse. Apart from Phil being really on fire as he is this whole show, I'd say it's a very good version but not in the very top tier, but it flows smoothly into Uncle John's Band. This version of Uncle John's Band is currently tied for 100th. Phil is very active and powerful on the intro. His vocals also sound great on this one. It's a great vocal version in general. A beautiful solo from Jerry in the first break and some interesting stuff from Bob, Phil, and Bill underneath. It has a thoughtful 7-4 section with, you guessed it, Phil stealing the show. And it sounds like hints of 74. Very nice closer. So as far as general thoughts about this show and placing it within their wider catalog, its songs average a 69.13 average rank on headyversion.com. Now here's an example of set list affecting the average. I strongly disagree that this show is significantly worse or more average than the three 1980s shows that we discussed last week. It's just that the songs played at this show are ones that have much stiffer competition in the all-time rankings. I think the show is an excellent choice of show to pair with Working Man's Dead. Not only does it contain great versions of half of the songs on the album, including the penultimate performance of the only 40 times played Easy Wind, it also has a Working Man's set list in general. The only long jam of the night is Good Lovin', which is quite earthbound compared to something like Dark Star or the other one plus bluesy songs like Next Time You See Me and I'm a King Bee. Overall, it's a bit more laid back than many of their shows, which is immediately obvious from the plodding through the snow, cold rain and snow opener, and subsequent Me and Bobby McGee. Now, I don't mean laid back derogatorily at all. It has a very nice chill vibe to it, which I suppose makes it a great working man's show as well. Not so much a show to dose to as one to throw on with a bourbon and a cigar after a hard day's work, just like Working Man's Dead itself. 1971 was an interesting and very transitional year for them. Lineup-wise, you had Mickey's departure for three and a half years after the first night of this run, and then Pigpen had to take a medical leave of absence of sorts in the fall, which resulted in the addition of Keith Godshow who would be their pianist for eight years thereafter. 1971 also sort of marked the end of one era and the beginning of a new one in their career. You had somewhat superficial things like their final shows at the Fillmore East in April before it closed in June of 71, but more importantly, stylistically, it saw both the shedding of the last vestiges of their primal era and the introduction of the more jazz-influenced style of jamming they would adopt from 72 to 74. Along the way, they spent a few months as the most straight blues rock band they ever were, starting around the time of these shows and running through August. Just about an even three-way split of lead vocals between Jerry, Bob, and Pigben during this period. And since Pig's organ wasn't on every song, instrumentally they were a foursome for much of the year. Two guitars, bass, and drums. By far the most bare-bones lineup of their career. 
going chronologically through the other 1971 shows I've heard, I'll save my thoughts on how this compares with the February 18th show for next week. I think this show is better than the April 17th show at Princeton, although it doesn't have any clear-cut greatest-of-all-time versions like the Princeton Good Lovin'. I haven't heard any of the April 25th to 29th Fillmore East shows in full, but I think this show compares well with the highlights of that run contained on Ladies and Gentlemen. I think this show is better as a complete show than the July 31st show at the Yale Bowl in New Haven, although it doesn't have a long jam highlight like the Dark Star into Birdsong at that show. I think the August 5th and 6th shows at the Hollywood Palladium are better than this show, especially the 6th, but that show is often singled out as a greatest of all time candidate of their career, so there's no shame in finishing behind it. It's just so explosive compared to the laid-back vibe of this show. And then the playing on the October 31st show in Columbus, Ohio is sophisticated and technically adventurous. However, I've only heard what's on Dick's Picks Volume 2, which is not the full show, so I'll give this show the full show edge. Overall, 1971 isn't my favorite live year for them. As is always a possibility with a transitional year, it doesn't do the primal style as well as the earlier years, nor does it do the sophisticated jazzy style as well as the subsequent years, but it's still quite interesting and enjoyable. It has its own blues, rock, soul style, and some interesting and unique setlist additions, such as Motown songs like I Second That Emotion. I wonder if they have any other... 1971 releases up their sleeves as we approach the 50th anniversaries in 2021. And now I'll give Spencer a ring again for his thoughts on this February 21st, 71 concert at the Capitol Theater. Okay, so we're back with Spencer Cropper for more expert insight, this time about the companion concert included on this release, the February 21st, 1971 show at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. I'm excited to get into this. All right. So I know you're not typically a a live dead fanatic like me, but what stood out to you about this show when you listened to it in preparation for this episode? I think like the sheer range of songs, like whether it's an original or if it's Johnny B. Good or me and Bobby McGee, um, it all sounds like the dead and you hear them doing a rendition of somebody else's song, but it's still so inherently them. Like Johnny B. Good is not a Chuck Berry song when you hear them do it. It's just a great song and you hear them doing it and you're like, yeah, I'm glad they played that. I'm, I'm never thinking, eh, I would have rather heard another one of their originals there. Um, but just start to finish. And like, you're talking about like, this is a shorter show. Like how long is the actual show? Is it like two hours ish? Two two and a half, I think. Right. And it's like, to me, it didn't feel like a two and a half hour listen, which Mm. is definitely a sign of a great show. Um, And and I was so surprised off the top. I was expecting more jamming Mm. and pretty quickly the first three or four songs are gone. And you're like, wow, this is flying by. Uh, And there's not too much jamming. It's like, it's really two and a half hours of song after song Mm -hmm. just boom 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 going through them and i think it does give you a really clear picture of like why they were such a great live band because 
whether they were jamming or not, like they knew so many songs, like there's just always another one ready to go. And I liked the looseness right off the top. It almost sounded like, um, it sounded like somebody was jamming and then the band just started anyways. Mm-hmm. And then they just quickly fall into place and like, not in a sloppy way. And like, uh, they're not worried at all about this. Like they're so seasoned on stage where it starts off and it's not a false start because like the majority of the band is just in on the first note. And I don't even think I heard them count. Like they just start. Yeah. Whereas like if that happened at one of our shows back in the day, we'd be like, Oh, we messed up and like freaking out. Cause we didn't start at the same time, but they're just like, Oh, okay. I'll jump in when I get to it. Yeah. Like whenever it works for me, I'm going to start playing this song until then. Like I'm just here. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, it, it definitely is indicative of like, the appeal of the band is that they were so loose and like they didn't, you know, they were never tight on stage in the sense of like, you know, they're worried if it's going to go over well or they're debating, Oh, do I, do I really know the song? What's that change again? Like, it's not like that at all. It's just, it starts and then they all quickly fall into place. And I loved after me and Bobby McGee where (laughs) Bob is like, yeah, we're just getting ourselves uh, turned up in the monitor so we can hear what's going on. It's like, you can't hear it yet. Like, it sounds yeah. phenomenal. Like, that's right. Because, I mean, definitely performing on stage, like the first couple songs, if you're not hearing yourself right in the monitors yet, it can be a little bit of a yeah, disaster. You, yeah, you start thinking like, oh, the whole show's gone down the drain. Like, you're like, quickly, yeah, you're quickly thinking like, oh, it probably sounds this bad in the room, which normally it doesn't, but like that's where your head immediately goes. Mm-hmm. And I just love that they're they're three songs in already, and they're like, uh, can we get the monitors up? <laughs> well, I, I mentioned uh, when I was going through the show just before you got on here, the opening with Cold Rain and Snow, followed by me and Bobby McGee, they also do that the second Copenhagen show a year later on the Europe 72 tour. And that show has a similar kind of like relaxed vibe to it. And at some point, I think in the first set, uh, Jerry even says like, yeah, we're coasting to a start. <laughs> did you know that, that uh, me and Bobby McGee's written by Chris Christopherson? I did. Yeah. I never knew that because I was listening to it. And of course I know like Janis Joplin's version, but mm-hmm. like she didn't like a lot of her stuff. She didn't write. I'm not actually sure if she wrote much at all. I don't know enough yeah, to say, but, sure but that's why I, I immediately looked it up because I was like, I wonder who wrote this then. And I was like, Chris Christopherson, are you kidding me? That's awesome. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, did you have a few favorite songs uh, or a few least favorites even? Uh, yeah. Songs that stuck out, stuck out and this is in no particular order. Sure. Ripple is one of my favorites. And so just right off the top, like I love that song. Anytime they play that, you've got my full attention. Love that song. I, it could go on forever. And they didn't play it that often. This one is, uh, I think it's currently ranked fourth on headyversion.com. Yeah. And like, with it being a song that like they didn't play very often, like you definitely feel lucky when it's part of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with, I thought it was funny how they included, like there's a separate track for the false start. Yeah. Than the actual 
song. And I, like, that's hilarious because like, it would have been so easy to just cut out the false start, right? Yeah, like it, really it was is, yeah. 50 years ago. Like you can just take it out and nobody's going well. And, but they're like, no, we're going to keep it in there. And even better, we're going to make it its own track. Yeah. Bob's like, only um, the best. And then other than, like I loved Bertha. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I loved Bertha playing in the band. Um, beat it on down the line. I think that's the first time I've heard this. And Jerry just goes off on that. Yeah, that's funny you single that out because it's one for me as someone who listens to a lot of shows, they played it quite often. So I've kind of gotten to a point, I'm starting to come back around to like enjoying it again, but I got to a point for a while, like especially in the spring when I listened to every Europe 72 show on the day it happened. I'm like, oh, like I kind of groan when I see it in the set list, even though it's short and like they always play it well. Just there's like so many other songs of theirs that I would rather have in the set list. I'm like, oh, this again. But then, uh, yeah, every once in a while, I'll hear a really good version like this one. I'd be like, okay, yeah, this is all right. And that, and it's funny too, like, because it's so opposite. Like, I, I, it struck me as like, I've never heard this before. And maybe I have, maybe I haven't, but I just didn't recall it. And I was listening. And then when, when Jerry started soloing, I was just blown away. Like, it's so loose and like free but like wicked like it sounds like he's really trying to show you like uh i could be i could be in like zeppelin mm-hmm. like that to me like just the way he's playing it it's like so hard rock compared to his other stuff and it's just like he's just wailing and yeah, i love I, that i gotta show you the dusseldorf 72 version it's my favorite i think yeah. Um, and what what in that version is like your favorite like just the way he plays it yeah basically i mean for the shorter ones like that where structurally it didn't change much it's basically just like you know how ferociously did they attack it and stuff but yeah that, that one's thunderous yeah like to me it sounded like like he had been waiting a couple songs like he's looking forward to it and it finally gets there and he's like now is my time to show uh, other than that, I really liked I Know You Rider. I don't know how often they play that one. Uh, quite often. It, it was almost, a, well, I shouldn't say all. So they would play it acoustic much slower, like in 1970. But uh, after that, it was almost always paired with China Cat Sunflower because the transition works so well. Well, it's funny you say that because both of those, I had them singled out as two of my favorites from the show. And I love like China Cat is like such an interesting song and it's it's wacky and out there and like placed next to all of the uh songs from from Working Men's. It's like so different. Yeah. And I yeah, that one stuck out. Whereas I've heard it in other shows where it, it's like where you know there's Dark Star in the set and other stuff, and I it doesn't like I'm not like blown away by it, but then right. hearing it in this context. I really enjoyed it. And I loved playing in the band and Sugar Mag. I mean, obviously those are two that you can't go wrong with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved I loved how they played on all of it. And then if I had to pick some least favorites, uh, right off the bat when Loser started, I wasn't big on it. Uh, and then about halfway through, something happened and I was like, maybe I like it, but then I listened to it again and I was like, I just don't like the start enough to say I like it overall. 
But like, even still, like if it's my least favorite song from this show, I still couldn't like dislike it. Like overall, I enjoyed it, but it just struck me as like a bit of a low moment in context to the, all the high moments on here. Yeah. It's one that I, uh, I go back and forth on sometimes too. Some days if I'm in the right mood for it, I'm like, yeah, okay, sick. And then other times it's not that like you say, it's not that you're not enjoying it, but it feels like one that you're getting through to get to the one you peeked ahead at on the track listing. And you're like, Oh, I can't wait for that one. Right. And then you're just waiting. You're like, okay, two more minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And like other ones like that, like I wasn't huge on bird song or King B and for some reason I don't like Warfrat. Really? Yeah. It's, I'm just, just not, I, I think it was too slow and it just kind of lost me, which of course, like, that's a big, like, you know, I'm, I'm into stuff that's up tempo and I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm somebody that I'm like, if you could have played it faster, you should have <laughs> like, not that you can't have a slow song. Like yeah, there's a time and a place and you can have a fantastic slow song. And I, it's not like I hate on all slow songs, yeah. but that just struck me as one where I was like, you know, maybe you could have done that a bit faster and you know, well, it's, in- that's interesting. Cause, uh, I mean, King B, like whatever. I like it, but uh, I'm a like I like a lot of old blues stuff. But um, Bird Song is like one of my uh, favorite Dead songs. Uh, although both those two debuted on this run at the Cap, so they're both very like fresh and still being worked on. Um, Bird Song, I would say, hit its peak like in '72 and '73. Um, and Warfrat, I think when I did my top 100 dead songs back in the spring, I ranked it 11. I'm really high on Warfrat, but uh, to me, it works best when it it comes like deep in one of the long, far out jams because it it almost gives it implies that you have to journey to arrive at wherever this wharf is. And then when you're coming out of like a far out dark star and they slip into it, you're like, whoa, okay, cool. But the way they launch into it cold at this show, I know what you mean. It It's harder for it to grab you when they just started out of the blue like that. Yeah. Like, and I think that's, I think in a different context like that, I might enjoy it, but where it just started and just like, it didn't, what was it after? Like, what was the track listing? Uh, let me uh, refresh my memory here. I know it's towards the end. Um, oh, right after Beat It On Down the Line and before Trucking. So, I mean, I think that would be why, right? You, you're coming off of Beat It On Down the Line, which is so fast, and then it's into Warfrat. And so just like my ear would catch that right away where it's like, uh, we're way slower here. Like, I didn't want to slow down. Like, yeah. Can we get this and get on the truck and now? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of strange how it's dropped in like that because after that it's trucking Casey Jones, good loving. So it's like the oddball in the midst of four really upbeat ones. Well, I I had the same thing, like the same thought because I loved the ending of the show. And I feel like if you took Warfrat out out of that and maybe put it earlier or just dropped it completely, like you're working up to the climax there whereas i felt like beat it on down the line like was the start of that where it's like we're really accelerating here to the end of the show 
mm-hmm. more frat comes and you're like, now I'm not sure what's going on. And then of course trucking starts and it's like, okay, we're still getting there, but I just feel like it's delaying it almost too much for me where it's like, I need it right now. Like I, I need the highlight of the show right now. <laughs> and it's like, it comes to that and I'm like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then of course, right. You get into, into trucking. And then by the time you're in good love and it's like, you know, joyous, like you can't do any better. Yeah. what did you think of this good loving? Cause I know you, you don't love the long songs usually. And it's the only, uh, like long one on this one, 17 minutes. Um, I honestly, like there's nothing I can complain about with it. It's, I mean, good loving, right. Is a song that you listen to the original version and you need it once or twice, maybe even three times because it's, it's so short. It's so short. And it's also so energetic and fun. And it like, you really get transported into that, that feeling mm-hmm. and you hear it once and you're like, okay, like that's not enough. Like I need more of that. And then you hear it for 20 minutes and you're like, I still kind of need more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I liked that every song on this was under 10 minutes, except good Lovin'. And then I'm like, you know what, if you're going to have one that's 17 minutes, you can't really pick a better one here. And, and when I was saying how, uh, it struck me as like a whole lot of love for Zeppelin, where it was kind of later on in the set and you would have other songs as part of it. And like with the drum breakdown and good Lovin', that's mm-hmm. what it kind of, felt like to me where it was like, you're not just playing the song, you're putting your own stuff in the middle. And it's almost like a medley mm-hmm. of sorts. And of course, like good loving, like every time where it moves away from the chorus, the second they break back into it, you're just so like amped up that it's back. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of the live ones when you can tell they've like hit the brakes, like, okay, we're done with the jam and they start like bubbling to the surf. It's like a pot boiling with uh like when you're cooking noodles or something and they're like you can tell they're getting ready to explode back into the chorus yeah and it feels like you're being launched out of a can and you're like yeah like you're just hanging on the edge of your seat like waiting for it to come back and then of course it's like to me it's like fireworks at the end of a night like it's it's really like whether it's the last song or not like it's kind of capping it all off and by the time you've heard that you're just like that was a phenomenal show Like, it's great. Like, not that it hasn't been good or great leading up to it, but you hear that and it's kind of like, to me, it seals the deal that you're glad you listened to this. Like, you know, you're glad that all of this worked up to that payoff. And it, it, yeah, I mean, it's a kind of song where I'm like, not that I encourage anybody to go for 30 minutes on any song. Yeah. But this is one where I can definitely make an exception for. I I mean, I could have easily had 10 more minutes of that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's funny you said that about the medleys. Uh, I don't think they did it too often, but the uh, the first Copenhagen 72 show, uh, which is, I think, the only show on that tour where it's like late in the second set as opposed to rounding out the first set, uh, it goes good loving and then they put caution in the middle of it towards the end. Uh, with a little bit of who do you love in the middle of caution and then back into good loving. And that one's really good. Yeah. That's a cool combination. Uh, and with what you're saying about the pacing, you know, because they played so many shows, they, 
and just their general approach to the structure of a live show and the set list and stuff, they, it's not like they had a, a hard and fast set list. Like this is the songs and the order for the whole tour, like Zeppelin or the stones or bands like that. So it was definitely, you know, some nights they happened upon a winning formula with the pacing and other nights it felt a little awkward uh, in certain spots, but like each song was still good. They just threw them together in whatever way happened to make sense in the moment. Well, and it isn't like it, it almost strikes me like they had like each song on like a little card and they put it in a hat and just kind of toss it around. And then yeah, you know, not however it falls out, but like they go, Oh, okay. Okay. And they just kind of drag them around quickly. And it's like, that's how we're going to do it tonight. Or even if it's less planned out than that. And it's like, literally as they're playing, they're like, let's go into this now. Yeah. Which wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's so like rare now, mm-hmm. right? Like a lot of artists, well, I mean, especially now with the fact that a lot of artists play to tracks of some sort, like even a live band now, like probably has some tracks underneath them. Um, and so like with that, you kind of reduce the possibility of jamming to zero. Yeah. Cause you've got to stay on the track. And it, it, I do think it's great because it keeps you perfect in time and it like it's very structured. But obviously there's a lot of shows that you're going to that whether you saw it the first night in Toronto or if you saw them in Montreal or if you went down to Detroit to see them, like you're probably seeing roughly the same show. Mm-hmm. And like even the Stones where they have a couple wild cards, like it's pretty much the same set. Mm-hmm. And like it's even getting to the point where you could see them on multiple tours and it's a very similar set. Yeah. And like, you just don't hear a lot of this anymore. And I would love to hear a band that's doing this now where they have, say they have 200 songs they can play. Mm-hmm. And on any given night, they're going to play 20 or 25. And yeah. obviously like if they've got a hit or whatever, it's going to be in there for sure. But like, say you've only got like two or three hits. So now you've got, you know, 20 songs to pick. And on any given night, you could change it up. Like, I would just love to hear more of that. And I think, the reason that the dead still have such a big following is because there hasn't been a lot of that since them. Yeah. Right. You quickly move out of the seventies into the eighties, which is more dance based electronic. And that's mm-hmm. where you get into that playing to tracks, like keeping it um, pretty similar to the studio version at mm-hmm. that point. And like hearing this, it, it does make you kind of envy concert goers back in the day. For sure where like you could go see them five nights in a row and every show was completely different. Yeah. Like Bill Walton has seen them over 800 times, I think. Wow. And like, you don't get sick of it. Yeah. Um, Like how many shows have you listened to? Oh, over a hundred. And for sure. Yeah. I, I haven't counted. I counted the number of Zeppelin shows I've listened to a few months ago when I joined that discord group and they asked, uh, and it was somewhere around 180 and they have, uh, far less to choose from because of not being around as long and not encouraging people to record the way the dead did. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, well, we've seen one of the, the current ones that sort of does that in fish right as far as the set list variation and all that uh but yeah other than them and 
uh, Dead and Company, which uh, who are I was supposed to see this summer. But like other than those two and a few other uh, jam bands, yeah, it's not really happening. Uh, well, and you obviously would have like lesser known artists. I think maybe what I was trying to emphasize is that you just don't have popular artists doing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there was a time where like the Grateful Dead were one of the bigger bands right. in the world. Like a lot of people knew the name, they knew the music to some extent. Mm-hmm. They were pretty popular. Whereas like, like now it's, you've got popular and then you have kind of like not popular and like the people that listen to popular music are like, Oh, that's jazz. And it's like, it's not jazz. It's just not (laughs) what you listen to. But one that I saw, I saw Jacob Collier and Uh, he was nominated. Like he just got nominated for album of the year at the Grammys, which I think is pretty big for like an artist that does what he does. Cause it's so strange. Like he is, he is a jazz musician through and through. And like his songs are really out there. Um, And so like, when I saw him, he's very off the cuff and like he has perfect pitch and like all this kind of stuff. Like he can switch from one song to another. And like, if he just decides they want to change keys mid song, even if it's something they never do, like he'll just, he'll just do it. And so like, he definitely has that, that aspect to it where it's very free and like some songs, there won't be any instruments and he gets the audience to sing it again. He does like clapping with it. And it's like, it's, it's almost interactive at that point. And, and I thought it was really interesting, but I do think that like, even he probably follows some sort of set list and, you know, maybe you have a couple slots that are like, we might change it on this given night. Mm-hmm. But then he's another example. Like he's somebody that knows a thousand songs that he yeah. could play at any, like at any moment, like right. could play it. And so I think what's so interesting with the dead is that like, yeah, they have their songs that they played pretty regularly, but like you could go and they wouldn't play it. And then yeah. they just decided that night that they're going to do a different song. Well, and as saying with Jacob, knowing a thousand songs, it's one thing for you to have your personal list of all these songs, you know, but to have a band of five or six people who all know that same list of songs. Right. That's what, that's, what's nuts. I mean, right. Like, and I've been doing lately with like, I'm learning the whole Beatles catalog and I'm learning all the parts on every song, but I don't have a band ready to go that knows them all. And I'm like, it's not like you can just find somebody and be like, Hey, you know, all 300 of these, like, (laughs) like, and and it's obviously a time consuming process. Like it's one thing to sit down and, and read it and play it. And then it's another thing to play it enough that you can, do it without looking at anything and just upon memory, you've got it and improvise it and go into other stuff out of it. And for which, sure, which, which is one of the reasons you'll hear uh, Jimmy page site for why they uh, ended up like never trying to replace Bonham was because yeah, sure. You could probably find some guy who knows the studio versions and could give you a, you know, a poor man's version of replicating bottom on the studio versions, but to the songs had evolved to even like they didn't improvise on the level of the dead, but the certain songs for sure had evolved like way past the studio version. How are you going to say like, okay, well, you know, starting on this tour, we started doing it a little this way. And so. Well, and then too, like when they were doing that, like, 
I'm sure the four members of Zeppelin weren't consciously thinking like, oh, last tour we did it this way and that's this. Like it just kind of expanded. Yeah. Like with them. And so it wasn't like we used to do it this way and then we did it this way and we did it's just this is how we do it now. Yeah, and then it's of course just a living organism. Right. And so like trying to explain that to somebody would be nearly impossible. But even that, like with Zeppelin, like, yeah, there's four members. There's three of them playing instruments. Mm-hmm. It's easier to have three guys than six. For sure. Knowing that many songs. And, and I mean, I think the dead do kind of blow them out of the water in that terms of just how many songs they know. For sure. Like, it's just not like you can't really compare anybody to them. And what it makes me think of, like, when you like when I've read about how many songs the Beatles knew when they were playing in Hamburg and when they were truly just a live band, I think that's the only thing that I can think of that would parallel this. And they did jam back in the day, but we can't hear any of it. We don't don't know. So it's almost like speculation at this point. Whereas the Grateful Dead, I mean, you have this massive catalog of live recordings that show that on any given night, they were doing it entirely differently and they just knew endless songs. Yeah. I, I like to view improvisation like if you were to graph it, you'd have the, uh, say your y-axis is improvisation within a song. Yeah. And then your x-axis is how improvised the set list is. Right. The dead are in the, the top right corner, like super high on both axes, where it's, right. you know, you could have a Zeppelin who are high on the improvisation within song, but the set list is pretty static for the entire tour. Or you have a band that certain periods in the Stones career, like back in the early 2000s, they shook it up quite a bit night to night, but an under my thumb from six months ago sounds pretty similar to an under my thumb on this night. Right. And then, right, it comes down to different iterations because, I mean, the only live stuff you could hear of like the Beatles, I mean, it's pretty this is, this is that, right? I mean, they sound like the studio versions just with ridiculous amounts of screaming, Mm -hmm. but like, there's not a whole lot of improvisation in the songs or in the set list. Right. So it's like the fact that the dead did what they did for so long is kind of what shocks me because it's one thing to have one tour where you're in that, right. But to continue doing it and like to never really slow down in that term, like it, it never became like, uh, we figured out this is what works best. It's like, no, we've just always done exactly what we want to play. Yeah. And I found it interesting uh, what you said about how the the covers felt like uniquely theirs, but you can still tell like what song it was. Right. Uh, I noticed that uh, in one of the 80s shows I was listening to for the episodes last week, uh, they covered Desolation Row. and obviously I love the Bob Dylan version and you can tell that that's what they're covering, but it sounds like totally uniquely dead, which I think is a great mark of success for a cover version. Well, and it's also like Bob Dylan's such a hard artist to cover. Like it's hard to not sound like trying to sound like him. Yeah. Like you sing tangled up in blue like it's pretty hard to sing that line without going like tangled up in blue (laughs) and like, like you sound like you're doing a bad impression of them. Right. So like to do, well, especially a song like desolation row, like it's so Dylan Mm -hmm. 
to even cover that is really ballsy. And then to pull it off is, is kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of, I know you said, uh, on the, as far as working man's, the album portion, Phil was what jumped out at you the most on China cat sunflower. Did you notice, uh, how neat, what he was doing on the intro was? Yeah. It's like he's way off the cuff there. Like it's really different. And what I think what I hear with him is that like it, it you can almost hear him like thinking as he's playing. Mm-hmm. Like it's like maybe there's a typical way that he plays it, but then he never plays it that way. Yeah. It it sounded like a a stoned John Entwistle to me. <laughs> yeah. Cuz it's and, like uh, got that aggressive thunderous approach but so laid back at the same time. I was like, one, I noticed his tone was getting, um, I don't know if it was more distorted, but like more aggressive as the show went on, because by the end when like, like I noticed on like, yeah, like the whole band kind of like, it's a bit more laid back than the other ones around it, except for Phil. Yeah. Like Phil was just chugging away. Like, no, we're getting to the end of the, like, like playing so aggressively, but I also love that. Like you can hear that he's having so much fun mm-hmm. and like the fact that it's captured on recording and that you can go back and listen to it is really cool. Well, so many bassists like just accept being fenced in like, okay, I'm a background instrument. So I always love when they find a, a unique space in the soundscape to shine. I like personally, I think, that's true. Like, I do think there's lots of bassists that it's like, Oh, I play bass, but that the bassists that do view it as like, no, I can really shine on this instrument. And it's like, it's almost a lead instrument in that way. Mm -hmm. Because like, if you're a lead guitarist, you can't solo over vocals. You just can't. Yeah. It's distracting the frequency roughly in the same range. Like it, like your ear has a really hard time listening to both at the same time. Yeah. Like you can't pick out the vocal and be listening to somebody noodling. And you see lots of bands playing, like, you know, you go to a random bar or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, that's one of the big things I notice is like, does the lead guitarist know when he's supposed to be doing licks? Like, because mm-hmm. there will be some guys where it's like, they because say they have one or two rhythm players and the lead guy's like, I don't play chords, like I'm not playing rhythm. Then they're always kind of doing a noodling thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like distracting. Whereas on bass, you can... It, like noodle per se right all the time because yeah. it's, it's just it's a different frequency it's not going to distract from the vocal and if anything it will enhance it like if you know how to walk mm. and like you just you have to know what notes are accessible on any chord but yeah. like phil is a great example of that he was a jazz cat like he knew I can do this and this and this. And then he's also doing like chromatic stuff in between where he's like, it's really out there. And you're always kind of like leaning with it where you're like, is he going to stay on it here? Like, is he like, is he going to go too far and lose it? And he never really does. Like it always finds his way right back to where he needs to be when he needs to be there. Mm -hmm. And China cat's a great one for him to do that on because uh, I've never found another song that more perfectly uh, captures LSD l- lyrically and sonically. Mm. It just sounds exactly like an acid trip. It, um, and it, as far as uh, 
uh, playing while singing. I actually discovered through the dead cast on the box of rain episode. We can talk about this more next week, but uh, that's why they never played it more because Phil actually plays acoustic guitar on the studio version and somebody else plays bass. And he always found it really awkward to uh, sing lead while playing bass. Like he could do harmonies and stuff, but just the syncopation of it was goofy to him. So that's why on the live versions, we do have a box of rain. His vocals sound, the phrases are all kind of chopped off Yeah, compared to the studio version. I thought he just like quickly lost his voice after the studio version, but it's more so like the rubbing your head, patting your belly sort of thing. Yeah. And if you're not like, you know, there are like great examples of bassists that can do it in their sleep like McCartney being Mm -hmm. kind of the primary for me, like uh, even as he's gotten older, it's almost like he gets better at it. Like he, he doesn't really have to simplify lines. Like there's a live version of being for the benefit of Mr. Kite where he's playing it pretty spot on and he's singing it. That's like, obviously it's a John song. He didn't even sing it originally. Right. But that's like a tough song to do. And he doesn't even look at his bass. Like he never even looks down yeah. But that's because he's been doing it for 60 years at this point, like yeah. specifically playing bass while singing. Yeah. And then there's other guys where it's like, yeah, you might be able to sing and you might be able to play bass. And if you're in the studio, you could do both. But the second you try to play both, you're kind of like either one falls or the other. So like either your vocal can't keep up or your fingers lose place. And then all of a sudden you're just playing root notes. Well, yeah. And I think it's, because uh it's the similar to why it's so difficult to sing and play drums like drums and vocals are at the complete opposite end of the spectrum as far as the drums are totally rhythmic and the vocals are totally melodic i mean not depending on certain singers sing more rhythmically like a jagger or somebody but uh yeah so it's that's what makes it really tough to be doing something that's so metricized on the one hand and then to try to do something really flowing at the same time. Right. Well, and it's, and it all comes down to like what you're comfortable with. Like my transition to playing bass while singing has been easy because when I played guitar and sang, I did pretty like intricate stuff underneath. Mm -hmm. And then like when I drum, I always sing just because that's like, I don't really play if I'm not singing. Mm -hmm. And then that has translated over to playing keys as well, where it's like, why would I be playing this without singing? And that's almost like second nature. But I remember when we started playing live, I like, it took forever to learn how to play the guitar part that I wanted while singing it because it's so new. And of course, like if you're not the lead singer of a band, you don't really get that much practice doing it. Right. Like in, until we went down to being a trio and it was like, I have to be able to sing everything while playing the lead yeah. stuff. It still was like a work in progress. And then you quickly, like you just have to figure it out because you don't have a choice anymore. Right. But like for Phil, he doesn't sing that many songs. Right. So like, sure. He's great at singing harmonies while he plays because he does it on most songs. Right but he only sings lead on a couple. And then, right. I mean, if you're talking about, he only played a guitar on the studio version, then that would explain it because I mean, whatever he's doing on guitar, I'm sure is less intricate than the bass. Yeah. 
Well, and even if you're playing with a pick too, that changes it. And like, even that with like McCartney plays with a pick. So that oh, simplifies okay. it to some extent. Yeah. It doesn't simplify the fact that he's doing crazy stuff with his, his fretting hand. But I have noticed like when, like, cause I prefer to play bass with my fingers. Right. And when I do start playing stuff live, it is a, a bit of a transition because I don't want to switch it over to a pick because I don't, I don't prefer that sound. Yeah. It makes it a more percussive tone. Right. And so, but then it becomes, can I do it? And, and it does take like you, it's almost like you're rehearsing a song, even though you are the one that recorded it, like, and you know it already. It's like, you have to almost relearn it in order to be singing over top of that. And it's interesting you say that. Cause like Phil is one of those bassists that you just know he wouldn't want to simplify the baseline yeah. just so that he can figure out the vocal. Right. And so then you're just kind of caught in between where you're like, one of them is going to take the hit here. Yeah. And I, that's actually why they didn't uh, play, or one of the main reasons I think why they didn't play new speedway boogie live more. Uh, Jerry actually found the pulse of it really difficult to play and sing at the same time. So he actually sang the vocals on the studio version, uh, just standing at the mic without a guitar or anything, which was very unusual for him. Right. Well, and it's, that's funny too, cause you can be so comfortable with it, but then there's just that one song that like, it's like, it doesn't have to be a crazy song. It's just like something about it doesn't and, click. Yeah. And apparently cosmic Charlie was like that too, which is a song from more there like uh 69, 70 kind of the primal dead period. And I really like it, but yeah, apparently I saw an interview with him from, like a decade or whatever after that. And he said, I've always loved that song, but it's just too weird for me to play and sing at the same time. Right. And then, then it becomes, can somebody else sing it or can somebody else play the part? And when you're talking about musicians like Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh, like you're probably not going to have another guy that can play the guitar like that. Yeah. And you're probably not going to have another guy that can play the bass like that. So your only option then is, do we want like Bob to sing it instead? Or, but you know, sometimes that ruins it for the song. Like not that they don't have a great voice, but it's just yeah. not the same. Yeah. And interestingly, they haven't uh, dusted it off with dead and company yet either. Really? Yeah. I I'm hoping they will try it at some point because they have a lot of great players and vocalists at their disposal with John and O'Teal and. Yeah. Well, I would hope they would do that. Cause I mean, John Mayer is one of those guitarists that like, there's nothing I don't think there's anything that he couldn't play while singing. Mm. Like he's, he's so good at it. I mean, especially like if you listen to the stuff he did as a trio with Pino Palladino and Steve Jordan, yeah, like he's doing crazy stuff under the vocals. So like that would be interesting to hear if he could pull it off mm. because, well, I mean, if Jerry couldn't do it, you're going to have a hard time finding somebody that can, Yeah, but he might just be your candidate to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, once the pandemic's over, come along with Jeremy and I. Maybe we'll catch it. Yeah, I'm in. All right. Uh, okay. So how would you compare this February 21st 71 show to previous Dead shows you've heard, other than the Feb 18th one that we'll discuss next week? I know you haven't heard a ton, but I think I had you check out a Europe 72 show or two somewhere along the way, and maybe a sprinkling of some other stuff. 
Yeah, I there aren't any shows that I can tell you like exactly what day it was and whether I've listened to it all. And I probably haven't listened to a full one mm-hmm. ever. Like I'll listen to bits and pieces, which I know is not the greatest way of getting a feel for yeah. it. Um, but I, I was expecting for all the songs to be longer than they were. And mm-hmm. so I was pleasantly surprised that they were like, to me, it felt really concise and it felt jam-packed. Like there was a lot of information coming across in two and a half hours. Whereas you could play for two and a half hours and you've got two or three 30 minutes in there. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's really not two and a half hours worth of songs. It's two and a half hours worth of music. Um, I, I just thought there were so many high points to it. Like so many, like when I was trying to pick a favorite, I really couldn't like, there were like seven that could have been the favorite. And then it's like, you're trying to pick a favorite and do you really want to list half the set list as your favorite? But like, you don't really have a lot of a choice here. Like I, I think every song was so good. And then I really loved the ending. Like the, the last four songs I thought were fantastic. Like Chuck, yeah, through the end. Through to Uncle John's band. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was great. And I thought it was a great way to finish the show. And like, I was just imagining if I was actually there, I would be leaving incredibly satisfied. Like glad I came to that show. Like glad I didn't go see Black Sabbath or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. This Uncle John's band actually has hints of their 74 sound to me in the uh, 7-4 section. There's like little teases of how they would get like really jazzy and intricate a few years after this. It's interesting that like that it could be like two, three years later before you really hear that coming along, right? I mean, well, it was pretty common for them to be on stage like on acid, right? Uh, by this point, not as often. Uh, the Veneta 72 show, the Sunshine Daydream one that was yeah. like outside in Oregon, I believe they were. Mm-hmm. But uh, so they definitely got their feet wet doing that a lot with uh, being the house band for the acid tests, right. which uh, certainly goes a long way to your improvisational abilities and chemistry with each other, for sure. Right. But they're like wondering, can you remember all the imp- the improv you're doing? Mm-hmm. Like debatable. And whether they were or not, like there's lots of stuff that you might want off it. And it takes you like maybe a year later you're playing it and you do something similar. And then you go, I think I've done that before. And then kind yeah. of gradually you go, oh, that'd be really cool if we, if we did more of that. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to think that like you can have a song where it takes like three years for it to start developing. Right. Cause like I've seen the process of like recording music can be really long. Like I've got a batch of songs that I've been working on for like a year, like 365 days on all of them. Yeah. And they're just about done. But then thinking about like spending three years exaggerating them and embellishing this part and extending this part, it's, it's pretty amazing to think that 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 was going on while every single show was fantastic there yeah. was also like a greater purpose to it where like then you see them five years later and it's like wow this is different like even the same songs individually are all different and then of course the package show would be totally different totally yeah. unique when they were playing yeah absolutely actually i saw a quote uh jerry said he uh i think by like 69 at least he didn't really like playing Dost anymore because he didn't like uh, not having the option 
to stop playing while he was tripping. Like it's one thing mm. if he's at his house and he decided to play for a bit during his trip, but to be like in a context where like you have to stand here and play for three hours, whether it's like not going well for you or not. Right. Well, yeah, not having that control, like not having a decision would not be a good feeling. No. Like we're, especially, I mean, that takes the fun out of playing music when it's like, I'm really not feeling it right now, Mm -hmm. but it's like, you're like, you can't get off stage. Like that's not an option. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. We've already dug into this a lot, but is there anything else we haven't touched on that as a performing musician yourself? impresses you about them as a live act um yeah on like it's on multiple levels like individually they all stand out as really good players to me um like with phil and and jerry they're a bit more of that flashy like it's so um overt how good they are and then you've got bob which the stuff he just like the stuff he plays like the inversions that he chooses like it's it's weird and it's yeah. like so him, and it of course fits perfectly underneath the other playing. Um, I but the main thing to me is like how natural it sounds to them, which of course comes from years of playing every night. Like it's it's easy to listen to it and be like, that's just amazing, that's magical. And it's like it's not magic at all. They just played every single night together, and by the time you hear this, they were so good at it. But to me, it sounds like it doesn't even sound like they're thinking ideas. Like it's like it's just like they're breathing them. Like it sounds to me like one body and it's just breathing in time with the song. Yeah. Like that's really how it comes across to me. Like especially the, the way they start and it's just like it just happens. It doesn't really sound planned. The, the song just starts mm-hmm. and the song finishes and it's like it never sounds like there's anybody on stage that isn't exactly sure what they're doing. Yeah. In one of the episodes a few weeks ago on the Deadcast, uh, they were interviewing David Crosby and he was talking about how quickly Jerry learned pedal steel and just like his playing in general. And he said, uh, like if he had to characterize his playing, it was that there was absolutely no distance between his head and the strings. Like, as soon as he thought it, the like the notes were out there in the air. There's no nothing getting lost in translation, or which is well, tough I, to do. I think it, I think it is, especially like knowing like Jerry was pretty well versed in music theory. Like he he knew what the songs were doing. Like, and it's very easy to get clogged up that way mm-hmm. because you go, "This is what it's doing." And then there's also that part of you that's, this is what it's supposed to be doing. And then there's that third part of you that's, this is what we can do with it. And then of course, with improvising and like that being encouraged in a setting like the Grateful Dead, then there's like a whole nother dimension to it where it's like all of those thoughts, but then also the whole time you're just like constantly thinking of new things to do. And like, that's pretty easy to get clogged up and then like need to rely on like certain phrases or stuff like that. And you listen to Jerry and he's very unique in that way that he doesn't have like stock licks. Yeah. Like I love Jimmy page, but he has some stock licks that you find in every solo. For sure. And that's not a, it's not a bad thing. I mean, when I, when I played lead guitar, that's exactly how I would be characterized. And it's just like, you run out of yeah 
things to, if you're trying to think of it while you're doing it, like you're going to start fumbling notes and stuff. So that's why people have that kind of stock. Oh, I know I have this little lick that works well, mm-hmm. it, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I just don't hear that with Jerry, but to think that like every musician in the band is kind of like that, like, yeah, Jerry's doing it and it's super upfront and you notice it right away, but Phil's doing that all the time. Yeah. And I, you know, Bob's playing to me sounds like he picks a new way of playing the chord every time they're playing it. Yeah. Like like one night he's going to fret it at the seventh fret, but then the next night he's putting it on the next string up and he's on the 12th fret or whatever he's doing. Like it sounds to me like he is thinking about, Oh, I'm playing an E chord, but if I played it up higher on a lower string, it's going to have a bit more of a, a warm tone to it than if I play it here. And like, to me, it sounds like they're so um, rehearsed, but also so not like they're, they're rehearsed in terms of playing together, but in terms of playing by themselves, they're like, no, we play a different thing every night. Like we're not just playing the same song. It's like synchronized chaos. Yeah. That'd be a great way of putting it. Like, and, and, but as the listener, you're not thinking this is chaos. All you can think of is how tight it is. Yeah, exactly. It's funny you said that about the music theory because one of the episodes a few weeks back, they also said that Jerry liked to write on piano sometimes because he was more of a novice on it. So it like helped him get out of that and like look at it from a different side of the coin and not be so like, Oh, okay. Well, this is the the natural thing you would do here, right? One guitar can be limiting too. Like I'm the same way now, where like I write probably primarily on piano now. And there was a long time where like it was just guitar. Like that's mm-hmm. the only thing I'm writing on. And like almost for the same reason, where when you're on guitar, like you start relying on shapes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to change the song, like you change the key, you slide it up one. Whereas on piano, like it's a bit more, it makes sense more up and down. Like if you want it to sound higher, you just move it up the octave, but the notes all look the same. Right. Whereas on guitar, like you change the key a little bit and then all of a sudden you're like reteaching yourself like, oh, don't look for that fret, look for this fret. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not a fan of using like capos, so then like you've got certain keys that like just don't make sense to play on guitar. Like they don't, they're not comfortable, but like those keys are typically the ones that like horns, horn players prefer right. like B flat, E flat. Those could like, those suck on guitar. Yeah. Like you, you almost have to tune your guitar differently to play in those keys mm-hmm. um, comfortably. Right. But if you're, if you're doing a song with horns, they're like, um, I don't want it in B. Can it be in B flat instead? Right. And then it's also that great trick, like, right. Okay. So you've fallen into a rut on guitar where you're thinking too much about this is the right way of doing it. So down at a piano, it's, it's the same thing. Like George Harrison wasn't a great piano player, but he wrote something on piano mm-hmm. and he wouldn't have written that on guitar. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you think about it differently when you sit that way. And it's funny, like Jerry, I'm sure never played piano with the dead on stage. Did he? There are a few times where he uh, sat down at Pig's organ during the verses and choruses of Good Lovin'. 
yeah to more like mimic the studio version like i can think of uh one or two in europe where he did that um there might be a couple other instances but yeah it would be very unusual right and so like that immediately would put him in such a different headspace right because if you're writing and you go i need to be able to replicate the stage if you're writing on a guitar that's what you're going to be thinking if you're writing on a piano you're like i'm not playing this on stage i'm just going to write a great tune yeah and then pig can play it so yeah you know okay well i think that's uh probably all we've got here uh so thank you so much for being on the show had an awesome time talking about this with you and i'm sure the uh the listeners will enjoy it of course thanks so much for having me on man i uh i enjoyed listening to this and i it has convinced me i should i should listen to more i should listen to some more live dead shows so okay well cool you, you win one there plus one for zach beauty i'll hit you with some good recommendations and we will hear from you again next week when we uh follow this same formula for the american beauty 50th release Great. Thanks so much, man. Talk then. All right. See you. Love you, buddy. Love you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed Spencer and I's ramblings about this show and we will hear from him again next week on the American beauty episode. Now I will give Jeremy a ring for his thoughts on the show. Okay. So we're back with Jeremy Shaw for his thoughts on the February 21st, 1971 concert that's included with this 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Working Man's Dead. Welcome back, Jer. Thanks, Zach. I'm honored to be here again. All right. So what stood out to you about this show when you listened to it in preparation for this episode? Uh, A couple things, actually. You know, I noticed they had a couple uh, different cover songs on there, and I was really impressed with it. You know, different feel than what I'm used to from them. But, I mean, one that particularly stood out to me was Johnny Be Good. I've been loving that song for a while. It hits back home just from uh, listening to it with my family and that kind of stuff. So I was impressed they did that. They did a really good job on it. Uh, And the set list overall just... It would transition smoothly. It was a nice, calm kind of just vibe the whole time. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I could see that. Could you identify a few... Uh, favorite songs other than Johnny Be Good and uh, a few least favorites if you had any? Oh, of course I could. Yeah. If I had to list off a couple few favorites, I mean, I definitely put Bertha, Sugar Magnolia. Those are um, incredible songs. China Cat Sunflower was always one that hit home for me uh, and Truckin'. So those would be, you know, the top end of the songs for what I uh, enjoyed for that concert. Uh, a couple that maybe, you know, worn up my alley would be uh you know cumberland blues um wasn't particularly uh interested in uh you know i know you rider or uh, the greatest story ever told but i mean it's to each is his own right Mm -hmm. how would you compare this show to previous grateful dead shows that you've heard i know you've uh, listened to quite a few of them with me by now yeah, you know, I put this one definitely uh, in a higher portion of the songs I have seen. Um, but I mean, you know, there's a lot of great 1970s show, or 1972 shows that uh, you and I listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Veneto Oregon, for example, had one of the best set lists of all times. You know, in Dark Star, incredible. Uh, I, I haven't found a Dark Star better than that one, in my opinion, of course. Okay. Um, and, I, you know, 
Dusseldorf in Germany uh, and Frankfurt were also two really great shows to listen to. So, yeah. I, I put those ahead of this one as well. Okay, so great minds think alike. Yeah, and uh, next week we'll have a bit more of a fair comparison because uh, we can compare this one to the show from a few days earlier that they paired with the American Beauty Deluxe Edition. Of course. So as a fellow live music connoisseur, so we've uh, been to some good concerts by now and we were supposed to see uh, the closest thing you can get to the dead now this summer. What impresses you the most about the Grateful Dead as a live act? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, what impressed me most about uh, the live acts that Grateful Dead um, does in particular, you never know as a, as a listener who's going to be in that concert what you're going to be getting from them. They have such um, musical genius riffs behind them and just the knowledge these guys have, which is taking on some sort of musical journey is just uh, phenomenal. Each and every person in there is on their own musical journey and it's almost, you look at the other person, you're like just in awe because you're all in this rift together. And, and uh, I mean, in the midst of this pandemic, we needed this. If, you know, if I can say it's like a mental vacation for us, right? Mm -hmm. You can lose all that uh, stress and anxiety and just, you know, they do a great job just allowing fellow deadheads like us to just enjoy listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Thank you again for being a guest on this episode. Uh, it was really important to have the perspective of somebody who loves the dead and loves this album, but isn't a uh, musician themselves because sometimes as a musician, you uh, can lose the forest for the trees by zoning in on more and more minute details. And it can be refreshing to have a perspective of someone who, just appreciates the general essence of it a bit more easily. So I really appreciate you coming on and I look forward to doing this again next week for the American beauty deluxe edition. Well, the pleasure was all mine and I appreciate you having me on here and it's always just great just to pick our brains and uh, inform others where we can about uh, fantastic bands like this. So thank you again for having me and looking forward to be on the show again. All right. Talk to you next week, buddy. All right. See you later. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed Jeremy and I's ramblings about this February 21st, 1971 show at the Capitol Theater, and I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Working Man's Dead as a whole. I had a lot of fun with this episode, and I'm sorry for the length, but I hope you enjoyed it and thought it was worth it. I once read Working Man's Dead described as the Dead's California country opus, and I hope you've heard enough today to know that that is both a sweet and accurate compliment and a gross oversimplification. I haven't decided exactly what score I give Working Man's Dead out of five, actually. I've been going back and forth on that for several days now. I know that I would rank it higher than Spence and Jeremy did. I personally have it somewhere between a 4.5 and a 5, probably closer to a 4.5, maybe a, a 4.5, uh, up to a 4.7, just below where I ranked Revolver and Houses of the Holy. Okay, so I don't want to keep you any longer. Next week, we will be following the same formula with the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of American Beauty under the microscope. 
Spencer and Jeremy will be joining us again, as I mentioned, and that deluxe edition includes the February 18th, 71 show at the Capitol Theater. So thank you all so much for sticking around. If you are a loyal listener, thank you very much for still listening. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show, and I hope you enjoy it. As I've mentioned before, I'm now selling Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper t-shirts for $40 Canadian. You can reach out to me on Instagram at rocktalk.dr.cropper, or you can email me rocktalk.dr.cropper at gmail.com, and I would be delighted to facilitate you getting your hands on a shirt. You can also, of course, follow the show on Instagram or like the Facebook page, Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. And if you feel so inclined, you can leave a rating and review at the streaming platform that you use, and that would be really helpful. So thank you very much. I had an awesome time today talking about an album that I love and a show that I now love and I'm glad is part of my collection, and I look forward to doing the same next week. Class dismissed.